Hello everyone, my name is Amanda Reyes and um, I'm one of the hosts of the Made for TV Mayhem show and I'm just doing this little intro here uh, to kind of let you know that this episode is a little different. Um, it's kind of done in two parts. The first part is an interview I conducted with uh, the great and wonderful actor Monty Markham and then afterwards uh, Dan and myself discussed two of Monty's uh, amazing TV movies. We talk about Visions, which is also known as Visions of Death, as well as Hotline. But I wanted to do a little intro here because stupidly enough, I did not do an intro for some reason when I started the recording with Monty, just so you know what you're getting into and who you're listening to. Uh, but also, um, his brain is like a sponge, guys. He soaks up everything and has soaked up everything in all his time working as an actor. And although we talk specifically about uh, made-for-TV movies, he talks a little bit about everything. And I feel like maybe he goes back and forth between the films and I'm not sure if that's confusing or not. So I did my best to throw in some sound bites to kind of differentiate um, the different projects. And um, But I think it's really informative. It's really informative. He throws out a lot of names of network executives so they might not sound familiar to you. But underneath all of that is a really humble actor who loves collaboration and really really enjoys the process of this kind of filmmaking uh, he has a lot of respect for the made for tv movie so i'm really excited um to have him here and i hope you enjoy thank you so much for listening that you did a lot of theater work before you made the decision to go into film and television and you were in something like 150 plays beforehand no it's been, it's been a large number i think that number 150 was like referring to uh, some of the documentary films but it's, mm. it's close to that number i quickly i went to uh, two years of junior college where i met a mentor that said i want you to do a play a tryout for a play and i did and that was really the beginning of my career and i did two years there and then but in the uh, summers, I would do summer stock. Summer stock is like 10 plays, 10 weeks. And uh, up in Vermont and Massachusetts, and it was great. And then uh, I did narration for one of these outdoor historical dramas, mm -hmm. uh, Cherokees Under These Hills. Uh, that was during the, uh, uh, the summers of those two years at junior college. And then they, a, my mentor helped me get a uh, uh, scholarship to uh, University of Georgia. It really, really wasn't a scholarship. It was a... Uh, a waiver of out-of-state tuition fees and uh, a job in the mess hall and uh, a job in the dorm with some janitorial work, some help from home uh, with the uh, ladies auxiliary uh, book club, etc. that I'd done some speeches for. So I got tuition and everything done. I was at the University of Georgia. It turned out it was a great, great u university theater. Uh, a lot of uh, Korean veterans there and we had uh, older people that were available for uh, we could do damn near anything. It was like a championship team in which everybody would return the following year. You wouldn't lose anyone. And so I did two years there. Then they offered me a graduate assistantship and I decided to stay and work great theater. And um, I'm trying to think. I did the San Diego Shakespeare Festival and it was great roles. I said in a column that was came out recently, I said, I don't know of any young actor that had, could have played, not could have, but was offered and I was able to do so many iconic theater work, uh, roles. It was everything from world theater to 
Stanley and Streetcar and Jimmy Porter and Look Back in Anger and Prospero and Tempest and Iago in uh, Othello. Um, it just goes on and on. And it was just a great time. I auditioned for, they had national auditions. I went to Washington, D.C. And you, all the local, not the local, regional theater companies, uh, Zelda Fitchander at the Washington Arena and uh, Nina Vance at the Houston Alley. It was a great time. Ford had just put up all the money for, uh, they put up money for 10 actors for 40 weeks at these regional theaters. If you could raise it through your board of directors and support matching money. And uh, that's really where it all began. But I, at the audition, I got a call and I met a guy from Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri. It was kind of like the Bryn Mawr of the Midwest, but mm -hmm. they had a professional theater uh, run by equity actors. The only requirement was you had to have a baccalaureate degree because we did instruction in uh, production. So I joined him at Stevens College the two years there and we did, oh God, five or six plays during the season. And then they ran an Okaboji summer theater and we'd go up there and it was 10 plays. 10 weeks and it was just great. And, uh, but when I did the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, a writer from the Henry, uh, Henry Hughes of the Saturday Review did a review of uh, Oregon. It gave me a hell of a good role for, of all things, Horatio in Hamlet. Hmm. And then he went down to see Jules Irving and Herb Blau. This is relevant to your story because Irving and Blau were running the actor's workshop. They were two guys at the uh, San Francisco uh, University. And uh, they've been going for 13 years. Very, very prominent. Uh, the, uh, oh God, film, uh, film festival and theater, fest theater festival in Belgium uh, back in 59 or 60 with uh, Godot. They were doing Beckett, Genet, Inesco, uh, something I'd never done. And, uh, but Henry Hughes came down and said, you should look at uh, Monty Markham and uh, so I got a call from him and I went down and I had to do 30 days of military duty in San Francisco, the Coast Guard. And while I was there, I met with them and they said, we've already given away our contracts for, we've left them with our resident company. And what we do is we don't pay 10 actors 20 weeks or 40 weeks. We pay, let us pay 12 or 14, 15 actors for a lesser period of time, same period of time. And that's how they work. So they said, we want you next year. So I did and I went back and then I joined them. And it was a great, great, great three years there with them. But then in 65, at the uh, Lincoln Center, they had had a repertory company they put together under this whole Ford Foundation and uh, building of great theater edifices, et cetera. And they, in that company was got top actors and uh, Jason Robards, Faye Donaway, mm -hmm. Arthur Miller's first play in the fall, uh, Hal Holbrook. Something happened. They weren't all happy. New York wasn't happy with them. They fired Elia Kazan and Robert Whitehead, two of the top people in uh, New York, and said, then they asked Irving and Blau in San Francisco. Uh, Blau had written a book, The Impossible Theater, a manifesto, and they were offered the uh, Lincoln Center. So they had a giant meeting in the company. There were about 40 of us, people from all over San Francisco, and artists, etc. Mort Zabotnik doing music like Cage and... Uh, incredible costume artists, designers from uh, Berkeley and all over. And we met and they said, it's a natural progression of our art, who we are, and we are going to accept it. So they closed the theater, which uh, I wasn't happy at all about. And mm -hmm. they had nothing really to offer to go to New York. They had a few contracts and those were to their most uh, members that had been with them a long time. And good, good people, damn good roles. And uh, I packed everything up and went down to LA I had another 30 days to do with the Coast Guard. 
Jules Irving's brother uh, is Richard Irving, and Richard Irving was one of the major, major officers in Universal MCA. And Richard is responsible, he's running Review Television, which became Universal. But he was the one that pushed in the uh, movies of the weekend. But when I read, met, uh, went into Hollywood and uh, had an appointment with Richard, went to Universal, met him, and he called an agent, uh, Sid Gold, who had handling some top people. We met and Sid loved me and we got together. So that was really it. Mm. And then um, nothing much was happening at, right off the bat, but uh, passing in a playhouse was putting together a one season repertory company, 10 actors. And they were doing some good Richard III, Terry Gint, et cetera. So I auditioned for them, uh, being unemployed at the time. And they offered me Pear in Pear Gint, which is like Hamlet. They, you don't get an opportunity. So I did. And uh, I did that season with them. Then in March, April, May, June, June, I did uh, Mission Impossible, two-parter. And then I was cast by Lynn Stallmaster to do Hour of the Gun, a sequel to John Sturgis's Gunfight at the OK Corral. Fantastic cast in Mexico, three months. And that was really the beginning of the uh, film. But all prior to that time, I think you're right, probably was nearly 150 volts. And uh, everything from the you know, slapstick to really the best quality work. Yeah, that's remarkable. And, and so I guess my next question is, and I do want to talk about your comedy stuff too, eventually, but like, um, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts were making the transition since you did so much theater, so much theater. You don't hear of a lot of on-screen actors talking about that much. What are your memories of shifting from the stage in front of an audience to something that's like in front of a small group of people and a camera? Do you have memories of moving over to that? I'd like to say it was... It was difficult, but um, you learn fast. Um, it helped that the first thing I did was uh, Mission Impossible, and it was um, Barbara Bain, Martin Landau, Stephen Hill. It was that terrific two-parter script. I played a like a communist guard of a Cardinal Vyshinsky who was in prison there, and then he they got him out on a wire a zip line out of the prison, and I played the guard, and the two ladies beat up on me. It was Marianne Mobley, Miss America, and uh, Barbara. <laughs> then they diverted him while all of this was happening. And it was great. My makeup man was, men were John Chambers and Danny Strepek. John won the Oscar for Planet of the Apes. And Danny was, eventually would do a movie called Hiss. Yes. The guy into a snake. So it was a great time. And I had plenty of time to watch, observe, look. A very good director, Charlie Rondo. He was a pistol. Uh, if you could keep him away from the girls and ladies, and he was, attention was drawn over there. It was who was watching, and it was a great, great guy. And uh, really gave me my best shot. And uh, But going back to your question, I loved it. I had a good time with it, and I felt good. And um, they let me look at what, you know, uh, it wasn't like video jungle or anything like that. I looked at a couple dailies, and uh, it was just very exciting. But I could see it and feel it. And then right away, I'm in Mexico uh, with Jason Robards playing Doc Holliday and Jimmy Garner playing White Earp. Mm. And it was an incredible cast. Johnny Boyd was there, his first film. Lynn Stallmaster cast it. We were just there. It was great. First time it had been filmed in Torreon. But you had a lot of time. These are some of the top character actors out of New York. Uh, we're all working uh, and in Hollywood. And uh, it was a feature. And featured moved about 100 times slower 
than the uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So that's it. And I, I let me jump one step further. Is while I was there, I had the offer to come up to LA and test for a pilot. It was guaranteed not to sell because I was already had a contract to do another film in uh, Spain. But it was called Second Hundred Years. Mm-hmm. Guy's frozen, comes back, and my found out at the time Arthur O'Connell was to play my son, and then uh, I'd play the grandfather, grandson, uh, 33, 33, and met everybody. And uh, long story short, it, it, uh, it sold. So very quickly, I was thrown into doing a television series, which is a grind no matter how anybody says it. And, but you learn, and terrific people, uh, terrific crew, writers. But the big deal was split screen, um, record scenes with myself, and then go around and turn the other and do the other side. And uh, you learned. You just learn how to do it. And uh, I liked it very much. The second hundred years is really interesting. And um, so you got a lot of press for that. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me was that you said while you were even doing the show that you weren't necessarily interested in doing another weekly series after that because you wanted to diversify yourself. Okay. And um, you did, of course, go on and we'll maybe talk a little bit later about the new Perry Mason and you did Mr. Deeds and and it wasn't like you stopped doing weekly series. But I'm curious um, if that was a conscious decision actually after the series ended or were the one-off guest roles just becoming so much more prominent that you were able to sort of just to keep doing that? No, I didn't want to do another series. I was contracted. You signed a contract for like second hundred years and I had to sign an option. And when I came back from Spain from filming Guns of the Mag 7, the third show, and which was brilliant, had a great time. And then uh, Mr. Deeds. And uh, we went round and round the studio and finally I, I had to do it. Jackie Cooper was head of the studio at the time and then Chuck Freeze. Mm. Chuck looked at me once and said, Sport, you really don't want to do this, do you? And I said, no. I said, at that time, you got to understand that uh, it was real hoodoo to do, to go from TV to being movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're advised. Uh, but my agent had said, no, this is never going to be picked up. But it'll be great film on you because you don't have any. You know, you just did the Mission Impossible. And so I did the two character piece and it was a comedy and versatility. So that's how I ended up doing it. And uh, it was quite a while before I came into it again. It was just tough. Quoted and saying, it's just tough to do a series. And uh, it identifies you. And fortunately or unfortunately, I never had a successful series other than Baywatch. Mm. And Baywatch, ironically, I left because of the opportunity to do my own company and do the documentary filming. I was very, very, not bored, but uh, really it wasn't much challenge doing Baywatch, but uh, I was directing them and there's a whole other story about how Paramation came about. But uh, anyway, it's um, to answer your question, it was uh, opportunity. And I work, and I wanted to work. And uh, the roles were offered, uh, all the guest starring roles. And, and as you said, rather quickly, this is 71, 72. Movies of the Week came in. Uh, Richard Irving and had put in the Movies of the Weekend. And those first two scripts, Death Takes a Holiday and uh, The Astronaut, were just first class. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, were you actually, I don't know how much television you watched as an actor, but did you did you have any kind of appreciation for the TV movie before you worked in it? No. No? Uh, all of the time, up to the time I started working, which would be 66, 7, 8, I never saw television. I mean, I saw it, but I didn't see it. I mean, I was always doing theater. And, you know, there was no such thing as streaming or anything like that, so that you missed it, you missed it. But I never really, I remember passing by and looking at something and 
and uh, doing something else. But I was always either learning lines or working at night and matinees. And, uh, you know, it's a whole different life and mm-hmm. a different way of doing things. One of the things you said in 1972, so this would have been after Death Takes a Holiday, you said, I'll quote you here, television features are the hardest because of the limited time involved, right? So my question for you is, if you could just talk a little bit about from the films you've worked on, what would be the average shooting length of a film and how would you prep for something? Cause I know the schedule is a lot quicker. And if you could just kind of give us a background on your experience on that. Movies for television uh, came about because I have to remember in, I was in San Diego doing um, Anthony and Anthony and Cleopatra and the guy who was running it, Craig Knoll, he'd been in, in casting at uh, Fox and then he went into the service and worked on training films and all that when he came back out. But, he said, well, I'll introduce you. You can go up and see this uh, casting man at uh, Fox. And it was myself and a young Australian actor. So we got the car and drove one up to Fox. Well, you go through Fox Studios and you could shoot a cannon. Great shot, not hit a film. Um, Dari Van Frank's set was still up and a couple of others. We met a guy and he said, we're not doing anything, but you both look great. And uh, if we're doing anything, please come back and see me. After So we, we did. But that was the feeling. And... and uh, Getting back to the time with actors, uh, Universal and studios would have producers and producers would be developing scripts. Well, they looked around and they had these scripts that uh, were waiting to make movies of them. And so they approached or went to their producers who had these and were mentoring them. So we wanted to make it as a TV movie. And they decided to compete in that way. And that's where they came from. Uh, they were, that's why they were damn good scripts because they were, had been developed, worked on, polished. Mm-hmm. And ready to roll. And uh, the first one, I say, was Death Takes a Holiday. And then was a whole other thing with uh, Astronaut. But best you had was two weeks, 12 days, maybe 14 days, just the way they were budgeted. The problems in doing them is it's, you know, it's television schedule. And you're moving as fast as television, but it's higher quality, uh, really top line directors and writers. And yet you're moving fast. Um, I could move fast. I I don't know how many actors you've interviewed or how it goes with them, but working in television and working in film, somebody said, luck. And what you get into, I said, luck is preparation meets opportunity. And I was always, always prepared. Uh, You never know what's going to happen or how it's going to change, particularly uh, on a set. Uh, You don't know the other actors, uh, how good they are, how bad they are, Mm -hmm. uh, why they were cast. So you run into this. And if you realize you're going into a scene and it's all pig and no pong, you know, you, you learn to play your solo, even though it's a duet. And uh, Sid Gold, the first thing he told me was, and he said, look, I can do 10%. You've got to do 90%. But never forget, don't let them roll the camera until you're ready. And if you're not ready, don't let them roll. Because to do film is to be filmed forever. Yeah. Come back to haunt you if you don't like it and if you want to see it. So the schedules were tough, but they were given a lot of tension. I mean, uh, we had top actors. It was the cream of the crop to do these. Um, and they really bunched up and came out and uh, ABC went out swinging because they were not really that super competitive so, as a uh, mm-hmm. network. If you remember, they, you know, NBC had hundred and some odd stations. CBS had, had a, ABC had maybe, I don't know how many, it's under a hundred, well under a hundred. Yeah, they were really fledgling and the ABC Movie of the Week really kind of helped them capture this kind of audience and created sort of... Um, a type of programming that hadn't really been seen. Yeah. There have been 90-minute, I guess, TV series, and there was Playhouse 90, but the combination of the two, I think. That Takes a Holiday is like, I think it's a 
a really beautiful example of how good the TV movie could be. Um, it's a movie that I remember kind of growing up with. It reran a lot. Um, that's the other thing about TV movies kind of lived and died by your local programmer. You know, like if you could, if you could get it picked up in your area, they would often just run it all the time, you know, and that's how I grew up with some shows um, and some TV movies that aired constantly like that takes a holiday. And I was always really taken with it. And um, we covered it on my show a couple of years ago. And I, I don't know that I've seen another TV movie quite like it. Um, it's just really beautifully put together and it's, it's really poignant. And I think it handles death and loss in a really interesting way that you don't normally see in television when it's being made for like a mass audience. And I didn't realize until I was setting up for this interview that that was your first made for TV movie. So I thought that that was a really great, that was my introduction to you and, um, and probably a really great introduction for a lot of people that are like me. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about making the film. It had an incredible cast. Um, it was beautifully shot. Um, and you're talking about these things are being done in just a couple of weeks. If you could just tell me some of your memories about making it. She'll leave here with me. David. David, I'm an old man. My body's in constant pain. You must know that. I don't need to see anything more. I've lived long enough. You spoke very differently before. Before my daughter's life was not in the balance. So please take me instead. You must have the power to do that. Don't take Peggy. She loves life too much. She told me she wanted to live forever. Though I think it's possible she loves death even more. You know that yourself. Peggy's courted death all her life. You may not know it, but love isn't the only human emotion you've learned to experience. You can add greed and selfishness. I'm afraid that changes nothing. No, wait. I've told you enough. Please, please, listen. There is no bargaining. You say you love her and that she loves you. But she fell in love with a romantic young man who pulled her out of the sea. Do you think she'd still love you if, if she knew who you really are? I was doing promotional work the, uh, Yamaha had given me all these motorcycles and snowmobiles, and I uh, did a, a documentary for them, and I did a Vegas appearance. Uh, it was a joke in introducing it. Anyway, they invited me on a, a boat to go to uh, Claire and I, my wife, to go to uh, Catalina. Sid, I'd called. I said, anything happened? He said, no. They said, we got this thing over at Universal, and I don't know if it's what's going to happen. So I said, okay. So I took got on the boat. And when I hit the dock, I called him, and uh, I had a payphone there, and I said, are we clear still? He said, no, you got to come right back. Got to come right back. They want you to do this film. I mean, that takes a holiday. Yep, yep, ready to go. And I, <laughs> they had seaplanes then, these old, old Grumman seaplanes. And we quickly went around and got on it. And uh, I've never ridden in a seaplane, but you sit down in it. And as we sat down, there was a, a sheriff, a marshal, got on board with a guy in handcuffs, and they were moving him off the island. We got there, and I meant, if that was a, that was a Tuesday, by Wednesday, I was in wardrobe, and by wow. Thursday, I was in Santa Barbara. They'd rented a house, a big estate right on Hope Ranch, and uh, I think they cast, and then we were working on it, but the cast was, well, first, let me say Robert Butler directed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I haven't told this story often, but uh, Yvette Mimio was cast, and uh, Yvette is a film actress. She never had experience anywhere else. And then she went right into a, a hit movie where the boys are. And mm -hmm. 
she did these wonderful roles of Light in the Piazza, etc. But it's been my experience with people who came right into film, never having done theater, that there's a difficulty in sustaining a speech. If it's more than, say, three or four lines, and it, it doesn't carry, and a theater actor has to always carry and hold the weight of what he's doing in his hands, and play just keeps going until it stops for an act break or some reason, whereas film, you may be doing pieces of everything. And that's how they, they learn to work. She was the least experienced in doing something like this kind of work, but it was a George Eckstein script and a Robert Butler, and then, my God, it was Melvin Douglas and Myrna Loy. Yeah. Just, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how. Bob Johnson, Rob uh, Butler said, come on to the house, and he lived in uh, Hollywood, in uh, Beverly Hills, and we'd like to kind of talk it over and go through some stuff, and I said, well, great, great, and I drove down and uh, met by this house, and uh, Yvette was there, and it was like maybe one o'clock, so he said, can we uh, just go through? I said, yeah. So we started a scene. It was a long scene for me. Uh, Death had quite a few lines and talking. And uh, it was some of the introductory longer speeches uh, once he's back at the house. And then he looked at me for a long time. And then he said, well, let's try this one. And we did another one. And he said, yeah, you know, I was just looking really, I'm going to have to cut. I said, this all plays so beautiful. Thank you. And it was just great. And from then on, we, it was wonderful. Melvin was, uh, Melvin, he was that good. But one of the more moving things for me, terribly moving, was uh, it's a brief scene when he's looking into the room and uh, Myrna's got the photo albums open. They have to ask him, about, why do you have this? And why do you look at it? And why do you cherish this and that? And it's not quite that, but it was why. And she gave him just a beautiful reading and a beautiful speech about, they're there, they're here, they're with us. But it was one of the more affecting pieces for me as an actor to be a part of because one is she was such a beautiful actress and it was such a wonderful scene and George was just an absolute first-class human being and a writer and uh, died far too early in my heart. Mm. While we were there in Santa Barbara on the other side of the corner there was a, a gentleman who owned the house he was a tall kind of flumpy looking man funny and, and he was wandering around always in the bathroom and uh I remember being in a, we're all leaning in and we're discussing a scene and this other head appears and it's him looking in. This is very good, very good. You know, just funny, funny. <laughs> and he would, we'd be in the middle of the scene and the camera would be moving and he'd open the door. Oops, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're right at what's called Hope Ranch in Santa Barbara. Why they love right beside it was a, a drive down to the beach. So you could, so that and I would go out for the water scenes in the opening and, and we'd film and film all day and then come on back up or they do the volleyball games and then do the uh, the boat chase. I got to tell you, I mean, that was great, great, great experience. Uh, it's, what's the word? Um, sometimes some things are so good. They make you hurt so much more often when things are so bad. Yeah. But I, back to the admonition from Sid was that uh, I've never really seen a performance or a show or something I did that I regret what I did. That was that was part of what I was given uh, by some fine directors and experience with some fine people long, long since prior to before getting into film. Yeah, that's great. But I will say the one actor you didn't mention, uh, one of my favorites is Burt Comby. I'm just, <laughs> if you, I love him. I love him so much. And um, I'm just curious if you could just tell me your memories of him. Burt was, uh, he had done Cabaret on Broadway with uh, Ed Witter. 
Ed Winter was a good friend who played the Nazi. I don't know if you remember Cabaret, but Tomorrow Belongs to Us. He was terrific. And another actress in the studio, uh, Erica Yon, she played Madame So-and-So, who was the uh, in the house. And when I went into New York and uh, met Bert and met, uh, again, who was doing the show at the time, I was kept coming in on a PR thing. But um, I don't think I had, I'm almost positive I hadn't done, Bert had, was doing a, a game show, uh, a game show. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody, uh, Joe Campanella called me, Joe and his wife, Jill. Jill had been one of my uh, students at uh, Stevens College, oh. a brilliant actress, wow. singer, dancer. Oh, no, this was one of these person in school and uh, at Stevens, and she was a brilliant dancer and a wonderful guy. She did My Kate when I did Tame of the Shrew with her. Mm. Um, but just marvelous. And then she goes to New York, auditions for her first it's called, I can't think of the name of it. Joe is starring in it. And she she's in the chorus and she does the film, uh, the play. And they fall in love and she gets married. And to this day, her mother with them saying, you know, all these years, she only did it once. You know, it's a great talent, a great couple. And they just made babies. And uh, <laughs> long ago, but he was just terrific. Uh, he was a great actor, yeah. Yes, wonderful friend, wonderful friend. Both of them. Great kids had they had like six or seven. Um, anyway, uh, Bert. Everybody was. Uh, it was one of the few times I've done something in which uh, the character didn't dampen, or wasn't a downer for the set. But they all respected the character, and were intrigued, and so it played one of the few experiences like that, which was really very strong in a in a film, because film is so broken up. Mm-hmm. And um, we got back to Universal, and um, there was that long scene in the woods, and he was in a wheelchair, and I was pushing him, and he, we were talking, and I said, suppose I told you that death is a beautiful place, and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I would still, no, never, so and so and so and so. Well, at that time, and I'm thinking 71, 72, mm-hmm. Universal had the tours, and they were a pain in the butt for everybody. It was like everywhere you went, and they had a great backlog. Everybody was in the backlog. Everybody, but Universal was like a machine. They were doing 14 hours for NBC Universal. And if you worked one show, you worked them all, but you'd always hear, and all I left is so-and-so, and then like, the Virginian, and so-and-so. Well, Drury hated them. They, the guys hated them. And he turned around and dropped his butt, showed his ass. They didn't want to buy there anymore. They went by fast. That's absolutely a true story. <laughs> uh, a lot of the actors because you had to stop so we're going through and I'm pushing Melvin through the and when when we get done you hear and the AD runs over and says something and then he calls the director over and they say something and they talk to the tour guy went round and round and finally the butler comes up and he said you won't believe this and he said but the word has just come down from the tower the black tower no the tourists go through you let them go through you stop and that evening I went back and they'd open up six different uh, sound booths. In other words, you go into a uh, and record. You go in and you record all of the lines you said that day. So they're fresh in your mind, etc. so that they would minimize dubbing when you come back in, having to replace your voice. And the sound would work with that. And those they just couldn't work with, and they'd call you back and you do dubbing. ADR. Melvin looks at I, I don't do dubbing. They <laughs> all look them on it. It's, it's okay. Uh, dub on me and Melvin will get your scenes and make sure it works. And we did, I, I can do dubbing. 
when I had done it quite a bit at that point. And uh, that's how we did it. And, uh, he recorded his stuff, and then I recorded mine while they were yelling and carrying on, and I went oh. back in. Yeah, you would never know that. And it, it is interesting because it is uh, a lot of it's by a beach and stuff. I imagine the sound had to have been dubbed at some point just to capture all the dialogue. Well, no matter what you're doing, you, you're, well, you don't, you can't, I can't, uh, the casual professionalism of a Hollywood crew, uh, the casual talent of a Hollywood crew is uh, terribly underestimated. Um, crews all over the world. I mean, I had the Spanish crew for, uh, uh, Guns of the Mag 7 was just brilliant. By then, they were doing a lot of spaghetti westerns. Hell, I came in in 68, three months there in Madrid and all over. Um, and then you, you're coming back into the hotel and you record. And then eventually I did some very little dubbing at all. Uh, you know, added some sounds, but that was about it. So, uh, of course, that was you, as you said, that was like a really incredible script. And before we go on to The Astronaut, I'm just curious... Um, after that experience, what did you look for in a TV movie script? I mean, you've done a lot of different genres, but were there specific things you wanted when you would accept a part? You always, it's always, always, always the words. Then it's who's doing it. I mean, who's the director and who are you working with? A lot of times you have no say so for that. I mean, it's like you're, you're taking a leave it. This is the show. Uh, they want you to do such a role. And you very seldom... You learn who's doing it. It's like this uh, visions of Telly Savalas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whole other bag. And then uh, Relentless, which we filmed in uh, Arizona to Cave Creek and then uh, Jerome and all around that area, and then up in the wild. But it was. Um, it was Lee Katzen did both of those, I think. Big one. I think Lee Katzen did both of those. Am I right? Lee Katzen did yeah, Vanishing mm -hmm. uh, Visions and he did. Uh, Relentless. Yes. Yes, those are those are incredible. We'll get to those in a second, but let me. Um, <laughs> yeah, Amanda doesn't change. If you're an actor, it's the words uh, and the character, and if it just isn't there, it isn't there. And I, I've turned down a lot. I said I can't do anything with this. You, you have to feel. I've, I'm spoiled by being. I worked in women. That's why I stayed in Georgia to have an education. But it was my God, what an education is! World theater and world theater was part of the courses and things you learn. There were no acting classes, but it was just uh, so much work and so much, you know, all of the Greek, all of the, uh, the world-class uh, films. And then I said, the actors workshop had that kind of craziness and avant-garde work. Priscilla Pointer was mm -hmm. the wife in, and she was Jules Irving's wife. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. She's a good actress, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think of anybody else. Oh, uh, Maureen Reagan. She was good. She was good. You know, everybody was, it was well cast. Anyway. So, well, I'm really glad that you talk a little bit about like who directed it. Cause I feel like TV movie directors really get the bum end of the deal. They don't get a lot of respect and they're because they do so many kinds of films. Some directors were making four or five films a year. And I think you have to be incredibly talented to do that because the quality of the films are so good. Um, and you're talking about these two week shooting schedules and well, let me quickly to the astronaut. Um, and I'll just, I'll just give you a brief. Uh, synopsis of why I think the film is so important um, is, and why I open my lectures with this film so often, is that it's a really interesting movie because it starts with the first Monty Markham character where you're this astronaut who goes off into space and gets killed. And then they have the, co the company that made the ship, the spaceship or rocket ship, whatever you want to call it, that has to find a doppelganger. 
right? And they find the other Monty Markham who's this kind of guy down on his luck. And they're like, okay, so now you have to assume this guy's life and you have to go into um, this person's home and pretend like you're married to Susan Clark, right? That's like 15 minutes of the film. It's all this government conspiracy. They're taking this larger issue of, did we really land on the moon? I think they're using that Capricorn One kind of premise before Capricorn One. And then they boil it down into how it affects somebody's domestic space. And interestingly enough, the movie kind of becomes about Susan Clark's character and then how you two fall in love. So it starts with this like giant kind of hot button topic. And then it shaves it down to its very essence of how it will affect just two people in the world. And TV movies are about that. They're about the domestic space often. And they're about how people interact with each other and families and couples and, and, that movie does it so beautifully. I mean, it's outstanding and how it's like the complete blueprint of what I think the network executives were shooting for in terms of demographics. Why are you staring? Don't, don't you like it? Oh, it's lovely. I, I'm staring because uh, I'm glad to see you. Would you like a drink? You know, I, I thought about you a lot when you were gone. Scotch or vodka? Scotch. I think I sort of missed your company. I don't deserve that. Why? You're the only one I could talk to around here for a month. Got sort of lonely. Are you forgetting the bad scene the day I left? You talked about how glad you'd be when this was all over. No. I'm trying to apologize. And tell you that... I'm glad to see you too. This is like a really weird question. I'm not expecting you to know it, but but were you aware when you were making these TV movies that the main demographic was women aged 18 to 49? Was that a thing or was that just a a thing on the business side you never paid attention to? Well, you you hear that. We heard that. That that was you hear that from the beginning from the first time you walk into television. You're doing it. It's like uh, that's the, you know, 18 to 45, whatever the we need new eyeballs. We need those because they're the buyers. And that's been a part of television from the time. And same with movies, but it was a television. And no, I wasn't. Uh, no, you're no, no, you're just not aware of it. It's such a given. It's like it goes with what else is new. You have to work uh, twice as fast or depends on what the uh, company you're with, what uh, where you're filming. They could possibly pull the plug at seven o'clock, regardless of whether you finished your scenes or not, or the scenes are simply cut from. That man, just like anything else, there are people you give them the, the limitations or give them the problems. And to hell with it. That's what I do. I can solve those. I go in. I can work in this video. Am I happy? No. Do I want 40 days to do the film? Yes. Can you do it in two weeks? Let me think about it. Yeah, I can do it two weeks. Can I do it? When they're answering that, they're saying, can I do it to my standards? And who am I going to have to fight? I mean, I've, I've directed television and uh, Baywatch, which was just some, simple in so many ways, but it's still directing. You want to at least keep the standards of some of the better guys have done it, but uh, you, you know, you don't. But in doing a series, when I did uh, Second Hundred Years, I hear that all the time. Marketing said, Now, man, we got you know, you, you got to grab that audience. And Harry Ackerman was the king of family films, and he was a sweetheart, a good gentleman. Um, Ed Simmons wrote the pilot for Second Hundred Years. And then you see him, this gentle six foot four giant with a beard, all the Emmy Awards given to the uh, Cheryl Burnett show, and the writers mm -hmm. come out, and there's Ed. It was, when you're saying that, it's like Quinn Martin, the great thing about Quinn Martin shows, uh, particularly with the FBI, was that script isn't going to be changed. The FBI has to approve it before we start filming. Oh. And I remember, I mean, they, they checked everything. Hoover checked everything. 
And so by the time you get to the set, you know you're not going to be thrown in. And that was a marvelous thing. But two, it was um, high quality. Dab the producers, Glicksman Award. And one of the best Quinn Martin directors was Virgil Vogel. Uh, you'll see his name on a lot of that. But Virgil was a top editor. And uh, he directed some B-movies and studios. If you do the work you want to do, Virgil will find it. And uh, his shows were always the best to work. He didn't mess around. Um, <laughs> direction was, you love her. Okay, thank you, Virgil. Well, you, you want to kill a son of a bitch. Okay, thank you, Virgil. <laughs> the editing was just first class. And the show put together and he didn't mess around. In other words, he knew what he needed. If he knew if he got this much of the scene, he didn't need any more. Thank you very much. That's what most of the guys were doing. Robert Butler was, they knew if I wanted to do it, I'd got to work my butt off. And he did, I think, the pilot to Hill Street Blues. And mm. good producers, good creative writer producers would get these. And they were that good. Joseph Sargent made a career. Joe Sargent. He's great. Lee Remick. Jill. Clayberg. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was just... Joe was uh, thrilling to work with. Uh, there was another guy who worked with, oh, God, um, who's the hack? Uh, Roger Corman. Oh. And he did <laughs> Roger Corman films, and then he came over to do Jerry Jameson. Yes, yes. And we had a great time together. And then he ended up putting me in hot, Hotline. Yeah, yeah Hotline, yeah. And that's one of my favorites of yours. It was good. It was damn good. I mean, we uh, hell of a good character. Getting back to the others, it was um, the fellow who directed uh, uh, Visions and uh, Relentless Katzen. He, um, these were top, top guys. Michael O'Hurley, he was a mentor. Michael was just, uh, you walk on the set and <laughs> got him to do Perry Mason. And I came in and, and hello, Monty, good morning. Oh, he said, fine. And he said, no, this is here. And you, I had a Mason open with a long opening speech and scene. And we're outside on the loading deck and dock and doing something else. And you stand over here and you do so and so. And then I think you move over here and do this now. Well, I, I immediately rebel against, you know, I, you're telling me when to move when I, I don't know if I feel like that. I mean, but we always worked that way, which was great. Uh, first time I met him on a Hawaii 5-0. It was wonderful. Uh, Wednesday, lady. That was a great show to work. Leonard Katzman was one of the great producers, writers. Jack Lord wanted this to play forever and but he also never wanted it to age which is why the cars didn't change and his suit didn't change mm. he was taking the task board but you can't really tell what it's 12 years and he was very very tough a uh, good guy damn good man and we had a great time together but michael and uh, you try it and you do it and i said you really almost can't do it any other way or i do a take with him and uh, michael Lally says, no monty you've got it it's perfect. go away and that was it but talking about Something else is that I was doing a two-parter on, uh, no, one part, uh, Fall Guy with Lee. Oh, yeah. And we're down at San Pedro. Another guy's direction, I forget who. It's the climax, and we're on a boat in San Pedro, right on the docks there. And the ninjas attack the boat and attack us and we fight. And I save him, and then he saves me, and then I get shot. And I'm over his shoulders, and I'm hugging him. And I die. So we thank each other, have a good time, and get up and get ready to go. And, all of a sudden, I hear a call. The car had driven up the CBS or whatever it was on the side of it. The director had taken out an envelope and he came up. He said, Stop, wait, Monty. Monty, yeah. Riker lives. I said, Okay. And I ended up doing They wrote me for more. Oh, we need him over here to do this. But so that would happen to you. Getting back to why and what is, uh, you just do the work. And I'll tell you something that not many people know also is on Astronaut 
the very, can you imagine what the very first scene I shot was? The space scene, I would guess, because <laughs> what the, the space scene where you're floating in space and they're like, he's gone. With, uh, in a, uh, with Susan and I, where we go down the hall to the, down the road to a, a bar in it's fifties dancing and they're all dancing. And that was a climactic moment in our relationship dancing. And she decided to go with me, but I had never met her, never done anything. And, uh, she had bad stomach cramps, and I, I use that as, it's not the worst of television, but that's what the worst of filming in television, which is on that kind of a schedule, that you're liable to do. And why we were doing it, Andy, is that we used the Andromeda strain set. Oh. And they refused to let the, for the NASA tunnels and all that. Crichton mm -hmm. and the others, uh, Andromeda strain, had not been released yet, and they refused to let them shoot that and it's another week before it was released they wouldn't let us shoot the set until this film and then uh yeah. day because he said television will throw it out that night or the next week and everybody will see it oh that's you know, they use that and that's why the first half was not shot until after we finished some of the, a lot of the stuff with susan my television schedule you either do it this way or you're not going to do it that's such a testimony though to because the chemistry that you guys have is so beautiful in that like the way the whole thing unfolds is it's amazing that you guys didn't know each other at all before this like pivotal scene she's first class always has been a marvelous actress yeah very frustrated with she was under contract at universal and uh, like i feel like betty davis going back she said i've got to do better than this and that was, susan just she had some great roles and then she just didn't work well with it well yeah she's great uh, I don't know if I have any more questions so much about vision. Although, oh, well, the director was Robert Michael Lewis. And you're speaking of directors. Do you remember too much about working with him? Yes. Uh, he was like a director that you just weren't sure. Is this good? Is it working? Does this guy know what the hell he's doing? <laughs> but he had a great cameraman. And uh, you can tell when work is going well. It's not that they're all going like this or anything like that. You know yeah. when, and you feel it. I mean, you feel when your work is working and going well. I don't know whatever else he did, but he uh, he's more of a theater director in the sense of uh, oh. <laughs> he seemed kind of ragged and all over the place. And but he knew, you know, all oh, right, yeah, but yeah, I, we never socialized after or anything like that. But uh, he he did a movie called Pray for the Wild. He did several movies, but the one on, that's in my head right now is Pray for the Wildcats, which is a movie with um, Robert Reed and uh, Andrew Griffith and William Shatner and Marjo Gortner, and it's kind of a cult classic. And um, and he was just a really interesting filmmaker. And, and I used to work at the Directors Guild and he called me once because Pray for the Wildcats was, uh, it was when YouTube first became a thing. And he's like, do I get residuals for that? And I was like, no, but I wasn't sure how to tell him. And he was very nice, but I told him I loved Pray for the Wildcats. And he's like, everybody loves Pray for the Wildcats. And that's <laughs> what I remember about him. <laughs> tell me, tell me something. It was that kind of a... Yeah, so... but it, he. Yeah, he was just he was just a really interesting guy. And he, he did yeah. other films, too. He did a movie called Message to My Daughter, which is also like uh, he was married to Rita Lakin. And um, and they yeah. I think they did a couple. I believe so. And I think they did a couple projects together. And um, and Message uh, to My Daughter is like a really beautiful kind of uh, family film. And then he did something like Pray for the Wildcats. And he did um, a really neat movie called The Alpha Caper with Leonard Nimoy. And um, oh, gosh. I can't remember the whole cast. Now. I can see them in my head. L Larry Hagman, James McKeachin. Um, oh, McKeachin and, and Hagman. Hagman's a marvelous actor. Yes, he is. Yes. And he, I think Henry Fonda uh, was the main guy in it. And um, 
Anyway, so he mostly did like men movies. And then he would do a couple of these kind of like really sensitive films like The Astronaut or like Message to My Daughter. And so he was like a really interesting filmmaker to me. So I was just curious uh, what he was like. But um, yeah, he has a pretty interesting TV movie uh, filmography. But you had talked about Lee H. Katzen. And so I'm kind of just going through this chronologically. Um, and there's just a few films left. But Visions, I think Visions is really underrated. I think it does have a DVD release, but it's one of those movies that came out kind of in the heyday of the ABC movie of the week when genre films were first becoming really popular on television. And that was a gateway to horror for a lot of people like myself. There were a lot of really great horror movies made for TV that were permissible for parents to let their kids watch because they thought, oh, it's made for TV. And half of them were super traumatizing. And then and then you ended up doing this really great movie where people haven't seen it. Um, and I think we're going to be covering this one on my podcast. Um where you're kind of like this put upon psychic you're this professor and you don't really want these psychic powers but you've had them your whole life and all of a sudden one day you're teaching class and you've been linked to a mad bomber that's uh, attacking people around the city and one of the things that i love about this movie aside from i think your performance is great and um Telly Savalas is amazing. Barbara Anderson's great. I mean, it's just got this great cast. But uh, I love that halfway through the film, Telly Savalas is like, oh, you know what? Maybe this guy is psychic after this whole time being like, he's a con artist and he has to be linked to the bomber. And um, and then he's like, no, I think maybe this guy's telling the truth and I'm going to help and we're going to work together. And you, don't, you that's something you don't necessarily see in theatrical films. And I see a lot in TV movies where like, sometimes there's just one really clear bad guy. And sometimes there's not even a bad guy. And this is a long story. But like, there's a lot of like, um if if like, there's a disaster film, the bad guy will be the disaster. And there's not a lot of people within the film that are holding up people helping each other. And so what stuck out to me is this idea of this kind of hard cop, kind of like, believing in this crazy idea that you're a psychic and then working with you to catch the mad bomber who has this kind of tragic backstory because i don't know how well you remember but joseph sorola i think plays the bomber it comes from the fact that his wife had died of cancer and uh and he couldn't afford her care so like it had this whole beautiful backstory any way i can talk to susan no i'm sorry look i'll talk to her for you i'll let her know you're all right lieutenant what happened today for me was a miracle. I mean, finally being able to prevent something like that. I am grateful to you. Oh, no, no, no. It's all of Denver that owes you gratitude, Mr. Lowell. Including this skeptic. So it's this really interesting kind of layered film that has a little bit of social commentary, but mostly it has a lot of chemistry between you and Telly Savalas. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about making that film. And I would love also to hear not just about Telly Savalas and Lee Katzen and anything else you remember about the film, but Barbara Anderson was kind of moving into genre films at the time, too. And I'm just curious what your memories are of uh, working on Visions. Very clear. I have very clear memories of just about everything I've got done. It's like the experiences were good. Um, oh, good. But Barbara was very successful. I forgot what series she was doing. Ironside. Oh, well. So... But she was very, she was a pro. I don't, we didn't have all that much. She was like, well, for actresses, it was like, she's the woman, you know, it's not like yeah. taxed with a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. But she was terrific. We did well. Joe Sarola, <laughs> I was doing, I'm doing voiceovers and stuff, but Joe was like, my God, drive his car from studio to studio and do recordings. One of the most successful recording act, act, actors ever. Oh, interesting. I came second only to the guy that was, in a world and so on and so on. Yeah. 
he did he did everybody's anyway the drill was cool we were in denver we shot it in denver but uh lou antonio and uh, lonnie chapman lonnie chapman i've known oh, in right. studio when i did uh, hour of the gun he was part of the trio three of us went out with wider bill windham was the other and bill was great and uh, that's a whole other story but uh, lonnie said you should come to the studio so he la branch and lou antonio was running a direction and everybody got was in it was great so i went in observer and went into the director's branch and ended up directing a couple of days but to digress on movies for television levinson and link yes best. okay colombo okay yeah well, absolutely i forget what film i think colombo was part of it and we were talking uh, bill link was a, a certain guy and, and nick levinson nick levinson was just a genius a wonderful man and uh, we spent a lot of time at the studio together with the observing and then he was in the writer's unit and i was in the director's unit but we'd all be together for the actor's unit and see what they were doing uh, i don't know if you know the process but at that time there'd be the uh, moderator some moderators were good uh, about scenes or somebody do a scene or do something but the best ever uh who's the guy who shot john wayne character actor nebraska uh mm. bruce Dern. oh okay and bruce was brilliant and so it was a great great time but look levinson said you know, you you sit there and you try to do the movie. You try to do the movie. You try to get your movie. And finally, when they came along with this, and said, "Okay," so they did the long form with uh, Colombo, mm-hmm. and that's really why Universal went in. So let's do the ninety minutes, and they did. And then they did. Uh, I don't remember how they put them together, but it, they were that good. And uh, Dick smoked himself to death. Yeah, Bill never forgave him. He said, he "Told you, you could have stopped." But that was just digressing with it. But getting back to um, astronaut. Or visions we were talking about, or either one, but so we're talking about visions, or you can talk about astronaut, whichever one you it's want to talk about. <laughs> it's not you heard it here first. I know I've said it, but it's we were in a car. We got along great right away, but uh, we were in a car, and the crowds was all yelling at us, and it was, might have been in Denver, but uh, we were going through a throng of people, and they were all, "What's going on? What's the horror? The bomber here? Why aren't you doing anything?" And so we, you'd sit. And you wait for setups and things like that. But they said, yeah, yeah. I said, the studio wants me to do this television show. And Kojak, do something. And he said, uh, what's it like you know, doing a series? And we talked. I said, no, you can do it. You can handle it. I said, well, you know, I did 30 Dozen, did this, and they loved it, and so on, so on. And then agent got me roles in uh, Europe, and France, and Germany, and Italy. They kissed my ass, and they uh, gave me Ferraris under the table, and all of the women you could possibly want. And they said, you know, man, yeah. And you suddenly wake up and they realize, you said, it's all crap. You're just doing shit. And so we talked some more. And I said, you should do it. I said, it'll be a surprise for you. And uh, he, he didn't thank me or anything like that, but he was like, well, then I'd see him often at the Universal after that. And then, how you doing, kid? And I said, this, that, it was great. And he was cool. He was very, very cool. And he was telling but he was a damn fine actor. Yes. Well before all of that. And so that um, he, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the spaghetti westerns or not spaghetti, but just stuff. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. But it's, um, that was Telly. Um, the other interesting thing about that, if you, when my character turns to the two guys in the house in, they got yeah. me in Denver, wherever that is, and he sees their faces blow. Yeah. They couldn't, it wasn't like CGI or anything like that. With right. Problem. How do we show that he sees him and then he dies out the window? And uh, it was great. Lonnie was cool and Lou Antonio. Lou Antonio was uh, head of the studio. and it, it was a great time with him. Joe was a pistol. you know. We, so it was the worst story. 
on astronaut. Well, let me go back. Johnny Chambers, I went to him and he made me a set of teeth to wear in that opening scene on the, on the phone. The producer, producer writer, and I'll think of his name in a minute. He created, or he did Six Million Dollar Man. He was a whiz kid, very bright man. He was a top producer at Universal. And uh, to his, <laughs> he did Six Million Dollar Man, a TV movie. Big numbers, big numbers. And the studio came to him and he said, we want this as a series. So ABC will do something, whoever it was. And he said, but we need it in this amount of time. It has to come on at this quarter. So he did it, created a series and put it on the air and ran it. And he did it like, I want to say, 10 weeks. When you're doing a series, the air dates are held. And so everything grinds with that. And the speed with which it's even the fastest. And every producer at Roy Huggins and the other mm -hmm. names you see on all these television shows at the University of the Time, <laughs> they all wanted to kill him. I said, because he showed the Black Tower. He said, Oh, we can do this faster. We can do this faster. And we can do that. God, what can I think of his name? But that was it. And he showed them that and how he could do a series. And it really, they really pushed the schedule because the bean counters didn't make more money. With it. But the worst story on both Death Takes a Holiday and I kept getting over the years mail about it, which was great. And then somebody said, I said, I don't have a copy of that. And I would like one. So somebody sent me a DVD. It was obviously a DVD shot off of television. And so then I started looking around and trying to buy. And there was no such thing as a, a DVD of Astronaut or Death Takes a Holiday. That's right. About two years ago, when I came back into the business after 20 years of doing the documentaries all over the world, and another 200 hours in that, and we had a great time, great ride. I had stopped acting, and then I came back acting in 2009, 10. And I would say that everybody I knew at that time was either retired out of the business or uh, running a studio or dead. Well, my agents had been CAA, they were my mid middle guys at uh, middle management at William Morris, and they broke off and formed CIA. But Ron Meyer was, and Billy Haber, and Roland Perkins, uh, they were all terrific guys, and they were my agents. And then when I started acting again in uh, 10, 8, 9, 10, I forget what it was, the manager I got has a damn good group of people, and somebody put me on to a good friend, uh, Gary Lockwood, helping this mm. manager, Chris Rowe, and Chris is Bruce Davidson, Malcolm, and anyway. The English actor does everything, character actor. Anyway, we quickly found out that, well, everybody knew me, but they didn't. The people that, well, I was out for nearly 20 years. And so to come back, is the people who are producing now are, you know, in late 20s, early 30s. They were kids. So they could look at the IMDb and say, oh, yeah, Jesus. So I told Chris, I said, look, and this was the change in the business of people. Screen Actors Guild had initiated um, ultra, ultra low budget films. You could get it acting for $100 a day with your budget's this, and for middle budget is this and that, and upper budget, three something. So there were people doing films, and it's like back when I had stopped in 92 or 93. You only did that, like the shorts, you would do that for UCLA students or USC or, or AFI. So suddenly there, everybody's doing a film. And so I said, well, forget it. I said, let me go in, I'll audition for everything. I said, I'll, I'll know when I get the material, and I've met the people, and had a great time. That's what I've been doing up until now. That's all worked well. Ron Meyer had been eventually president of Universal. Ron was one of the finest men I knew. Ex-Marine, just elegant, and he was Universal. He covered Universal heavy, like Fred Westheimer and Billy Haber at the other studios. One day I just called president of Universal, like Ron, and the secretary put me through. And we talked, how you been? What's happening? So on. So, well, Ron, had, I don't know if you know, he survived like six changes of ownership at Universal. So he said, well, come up, please. And drove him a lot, went up top flower, top of the black tower. And uh, first time I've been there. And the secretary was great. I should be right in Rodney. We talked about everybody. 
then I said, well, I want to ask you a question. I said, I did Death Takes a Holiday and I did The Astronaut, two movies of the weekend. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, to my knowledge, Ron, they have never been released. I said, I'd really like to have a copy. And he said, oh, and he really wrote a note. And he called the secretary in and she disappeared. So we kept talking. And then she came back and he yeah, he said, they're in the vault. They've never been released. And I said, they're there. I said, well, how difficult would it be? And he kept thinking that would be much too expensive for you to do. You really want to do it that much. And I, I didn't ask him the price, but I figured it was, how are they going to do it? Mm-hmm. And when you were saying, a lot of what you, the only thing you ever saw was uh, with Astronaut and Death was a, whoever caught it in the first rerun. Because my knowledge, it was never rerun much again, uh, again at all. I, I really regret that. I loved it. I would love to have a directed film with Michael Ironside, a hell of a good cast called Neon City. And mm, Yes, right. Yeah. And well, I just got a call from uh, Lorber and they want to do a Blu-ray. So I went in and did a director's narration of the thing all the way through it. And Michael did some and, I'm thrilled. She, oh, it's an iconic film. It's a classic. That's what Lorber does. I didn't even know about them, and I checked. They have no Death Takes a Holiday. But, uh, no, but they have a really good TV movie library, and you may want to put a bug in. They have a. They have had a really great TV movie release history that you may want to push them a little because um, they released a couple of uh, really interesting little movies like The Victim with Elizabeth Montgomery, um, which is quite good. And it also was one of those that uh, people remember it, but like it, it never had a home video release, I think, prior to yeah. Kino Lorber's. I did the commentary for that one and they released it with, um, Screen Pretty, Screen Pretty Peggy, a lot of genre type films. And, uh, I think they have done some dramas too. I think they did The Day After, which is that huge nuclear war movie. And then just a bunch of little movies. And, but of all the companies that do dabble in TV movies, they're, I think, the most prolific. The, the, I think the issue has been with TV movies based on what I've been told by other companies is that they just don't make a lot of money. Like people are interested, but not enough to count for the costs, I guess, that it takes to put something into a Blu-ray or a DVD. In addition to everybody's making movies and they're paying no money and they're not good, or they are good, but everybody, well, it's streaming. And it is so, not drastically, but in streaming films, the international market, and the international market is worldwide. It goes out. Fantasy, science fiction, and the first first run is uh, horror. There are less closed captioning to do. There's less chatter and talk, and uh, they want as little as they can do of that. And uh, everybody can understand a horror film, even if it's poorly done. And that's it. I did a We Are Still Here in 2015. That's right. Damn good. And it plays out of all of the films and all of the television and everything I've ever done that you have a so-called participation uh, with the Screen Actors Guild contract. The producer, the first time I ever got a, uh, a royalty check, not a royalty check, but a participation, 600 and some odd dollars. And mm. He says, yes, yes, Travis Smith. I can't think of his last name, but Travis, very good producer. Anyway, that's where it is. But that's interesting. I would say that to Laura. I like the gal was terrific. We came out here. I'm very pro. Yeah, it might be worth it if you kind of push it a little because I think, well, first of all, I think Death Takes a Holiday would be very popular because and it's such it a beautiful popular. film. You know, it's just so oh. beautifully made and it ha- already has kind of a cult following. I'm not the only one who remembers it, you know. But speaking of streaming, you know, one movie you have that's a TV movie that you have that's everywhere is Hustling. It's currently streaming on at least three or four different platforms. I have a copy of the Certificates of Incorporation. Oh, come on. Fran, you lease a building to someone. Now, you don't necessarily know what's going on in it. Oh? 
Even when the lease calls for a percentage of the gross? A very sizable gross? No, you're making a big thing out of this. It's not his responsibility. Oh, there goes another lapel button. You don't mean you're really going to mention Nass's name in your article? You'll be in good company. Don't act naive. It could be very embarrassing for a man in his position. And don't you think it's embarrassing for Wanda when she sits in the Pross van with a bullpen? You're not equating Harlan Nass with an 8th Avenue hooker. Why not? Because it's her own choice. Fran, nobody makes her go on the street. She likes the money. And so does Nast. Since they share the fruits of free enterprise, why shouldn't they share the embarrassment? Yeah, I can't believe this whole thing. I mean, what do you think you're going to accomplish? Make a few headlines, get a few hotels closed down. They'll only be open again in a couple of months. Fran, I don't know what you expect of me. There aren't any landslots anymore. I've got a $20 million project hanging in the balance, and I, I don't want to lose it. And that's a really interesting movie. Now, I saw it years ago, and I rewatched it prepping for this. And um, I forgot, you were talking about Joseph Sargent being this, like, amazing filmmaker. And, like, it's so different from a lot of other TV movies I've seen, which is one of my questions. Um, you know, I think at the time... Uh, talking about prostitution on television wasn't necessarily not done, but the movies that had come out prior to that, like say Dawn Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, weren't quite as um, realistic, I think. Yeah. And um, and Hustling really captures uh, kind of like that seedy part of New York. And uh, and I was wondering when you made the movie, were were you aware of uh, how controversial it was, and do you remember its reception? Are you asking uh, controversial for? An actor to do that kind of movie? No, just knowing that it, it was going to oh, come out yeah. on TV and raise up a little bit of a ruckus, I think. It was very much. Um, I forget, somebody wrote the piece. Oh, it? Gail Sheehy, yeah. Yeah, and uh, damn good script. And uh, excellent producer. And, uh, and then you had Joe Sargent. And uh, Joe was uh, wanting to do the part. It was one of the best. I loved doing it. It's one of the best films I'd ever done. And I, in a TV movie, but it was just wonderful woman from ABC who produced it. She had her husband. And they, uh, you've seen the show. Yes. There was a scene in bed with uh, Lee. Yes. It was like three in the morning. Everything. There was a big, it was a big gathering or party. And I came into the party and then it was later on. We're at home and we're talking and doing something in the, the scene in bed. So we're in the middle of it and we, she came to me and she said, both Lee and I were ready for the scene, but we only we still haven't got it set up. And she said, we, we've got to stop. We've got to stop this point in like five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it is. He said, I, I just have to say, if we don't shoot this scene now, it won't be in the picture. I can't explain any other way. I think of her name. She was terrific. It might have been Lillian Gallo. It is. Absolutely. Okay, that's what I was thinking of the author, but it's yet yeah, Lillian Gallo. First class lady, really first class. It's amazing when you, I've had to produce a ton of stuff, but you, God, as an actor, you've always thrilled, one with an excellent director, but it's such a treat for a very talented and classy producer. I met a few like that, and I made a couple of mistakes of not doing something with them. Mm. I should have. Yeah, she was terrific. I am curious uh, because that that movie is one of the few of the movies of that era that had a lot of women kind of working behind the camera. You know, the screenwriter based off a book by a woman, produced by a woman. Yeah. Uh, do you remember working with a lot of women behind the camera at this point? No, there weren't. There were a lot of assistants. When I um, directed my first feature, Defense Play, I had a, a top uh, cinematographer and um, operator, his operator. But there was an assistant operator, 
or second camera, that kind of thing. It was a woman, big deal. And they were the first woman operator. I think mm-hmm. literally the first woman operator. With Hustling, I took over same time next year. Bernie Slade had written and wanted me to do it from the beginning, but I, they wanted a New York actor, Charlie Grodin. So they couldn't really fight with it, but we did. But I was always supposed to go in, and finally I went in. Don Murray dropped out suddenly, and Bitsy mm. Palmer was doing it, and I went in too. We opened 70, New Year's Day, 78, and I'd go in in Christmas, and it was a big snowstorm and all that. But Betsy was just great. That was probably the best six months I'd ever had on a theater, single person, playing a two-hander like that. But she came in laughing one night. New York was still hustling, New York. I mean, 8th Avenue was still 8th Avenue, and uh, 42nd Street was still 42nd Street. But she had a place on the west side and she would walk from the theater, Brooks Atkinson Theater, where we were playing. And she started laughing. She had a, she was a tall woman. She was about 5'11", and she'd wear boots. And she had a big fur coat. It was cold as hell. It was wintertime. And she so I was walking down 8th Avenue and I said, the guy came up to me and floor coat said, ah, ah, she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, how much? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I thought she was a hooker, and it was just wonderful. <laughs> I'm doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, how much? Yeah. <laughs> it was great. So you experienced that first, the movie firsthand in a way, I guess. Oh, yeah. Jill was kind of cool. I don't want to say cold, but we didn't have much to do. But uh, And also the gal that worked with Jill. But uh, Lee was Lee. She's one of the greats, and one of the great people to work with. I'm very fortunate that when I came in, it was like old Hollywood was still working. And at Columbia Studios, I would be down there at Screen Gems, and they were shooting. The other was The Flying Nun and uh, mm. Bewitched and everything else in that whole group. Down the lot would be Prancing the Showgirls. They're shooting Funny Girl in Streisand. And the studio next to me, Soundstage, they were doing Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And my makeup man was, he said, well, you want to come over here? Yeah. I said, okay, I'm doing assistant on it. So he took me over to Soundstage. And I, was able to, I knew the guys, but you can climb up into the grid with the lighting. And I watched. I watched. Tracy and it was the final scene. The one that said, I'll be a son of a bitch. But he did it and like died so soon after mm-hmm. that day. But Fox, when I told you what they're 58, then it's 10 years later and it's still strange, but they're all working. And Harry Cohn was very much Harry Cohn there. When I did the pilot for uh, Ellery Queen, mm. uh, my mother was uh, Blanche in Streetcar. My father was Ray Milan. And when I was on the board of the actor's studio, there was Victor Jory. Walter Pigeon, and my God, you know, and my when I did Airport 77, Olivia de Havilland and uh, Joseph Cotton were there, and then uh, Olivia became a, a lifelong friend. She'd come here, she lived in France, but she'd come to Malibu because her great friends were there in the old colony. This week on the CBS Wednesday Night Movie, a world television premiere, a cop's uncle is killed, a beautiful woman kidnapped, a chase that covers the world of suspense and terror. In his television debut, Will Sampson of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest stars in a relentless pursuit to capture a gang of mercenary killers. No more rules. Revenge becomes relentless. Wednesday at 9.30, 8.30 Central and Mountain. So we talked just a little bit about relentless. And one of the things that I was interested in is that you talked about these short shooting schedules and this is a movie that has a lot of exterior locations. I mean, it's all somewhere else and a lot of stunts and action sequences. And I'm just curious about like how challenging to make that movie was. Cause it's an incredible kind of chase film. It was a good producer and uh, cave Creek. We shot the, the bank robbery mm-hmm. first. What was the name of the man? It was the 
I'm the brains behind all that. Uh, oh, Jonathan Hillerman. Yes. Yes. He's so great. I love him. Well, I keep thinking it was a play I did a long time. So forget it. it was drawing room comedy of some kind. The, the butler was saying something and something, something. And the, oh, I listened to you talk like that forever. I said, my madam, I too am equally enthralled with the sound of my own voice. <laughs> and that was him. It, was, yeah. uh, it just seemed like <laughs> absurd. But he knew it. I mean, he played it. He loved it. Everybody go. You know. <laughs> uh, but we sat there. The first half is there, and then the, the crash, and then it's in the snow. Well, there was snow in not too far up, and we're filming in Cave Creek. We kept looking, and then the heat was there, and we kept watching, and the snow melted while we were there. Mm. And they said, what are we going to do? And they're talking. Uh, they wouldn't change the shooting. I said, why don't, why don't we just stop and take off and do it? So we had to go all the way up to... And I'll think of the name of it. It was much higher into another area, and snow was all over the place. And it was a it was where the finale was. And uh, the if you imagine, oh, this is a nice park-like setting, and there's benches, and there's such and such. And now it's all covered with snow, and you absolutely cannot see what's there under the snow. So they took the girl. I can't think of her name. It's Mariana Hill. Yes. Yeah. And put her down by the tree, and Will said, "Well, we can't run in the snow, and because it'll, you know." We'll, you can run a little bit further off the side if you want to see what it feels like. Yeah. So they ran, and sure enough, he hit a bench and banged his knee. Oh. I did the same thing. I, I don't know to this day. I think I hit a bench. And uh, Larry, he didn't. Uh, but uh, it was tough moving around in that whole milieu because we were now under the gun. You had to finish. We had to shoot. And Will, they, they changed a couple of things he had to do because he couldn't walk. But Lee was just casually damn good. Uh, he and... Uh, Michael O'Hurley, oh, they would do a lot of the uh, five O's. Mm. Oh, yeah. Another mentor, a good friend. That's, he directed and I'm forever friends with him and the family. Moved out on the point where he was. You talked a little bit about uh, Will Sampson, who stars in the film. What do you remember about him? He's so great. He was terrific. He was uh, everything you kind of want him to be, but you forgot he was a pilot, for God's sake. He uh, was in the service. He flew jet. But we talked at length about uh, shooting Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. One flew with the cuckoo's nest, yeah. <laughs> they get to the point where it was everything you talk about it, but he was very, very cool and very laconic, but he's very aware of the responsibility, uh, what he had achieved in the sense of, he said, one time he said, I miss drinking heavy. He said, I would indulge myself sometimes and just really have a drunken weekend. He said, but you know, everybody, oh, they're that drunken Indian. Yeah. Really stay on top of it. And he was very aware of that, but he was a very handsome man, very striking, but yeah. They rushed out and they got the location in Cave Creek and Lee about crap when they studied. We went to the location of the house where they had been, the bad guys, and looked in the ceiling was about eight feet, maybe seven and a half. It was definitely a lower ceiling house. And he said, my God, didn't anybody tell you that Will Sampson's in here playing it? You know, so Will almost had to stoop when he walked in. They yeah. Shot and he kind of didn't crouch. I mean, his hat was broke. Br br oh, guy's so tall. Yeah, he was a giant. I couldn't. There's a part where he puts his leg up on like a desk, and I'm like, oh my god, that's like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? He just was this massive guy. But it's interesting what you say about him being kind of aware of like his image as a Native American, because the film really deals really beautifully with that. Not just your relationship with him, but also Larry Wilcox's relationship, because he keeps calling him Kimosabi, and you could tell that it's like this well-meaning kind of nickname he gave him but also it's it's offensive and and will sampson's character spends time kind of like dealing with this idea that he has to confront the fact that this 
kind of well-meaning partner of his is doing these wrong things. And it's kind of a teachable moment, I think, in the film, in this action film, you know what I mean? Where these guys are like super ruthless and like blowing, they're putting grenades on everything and blowing up everything, including your partner. And it's such an amazing film. And it's one of the, it's, it's like visions in that I think it's really criminally underrated. Like I, I've not really heard many people talk about it and maybe didn't rerun a lot, but it's, it's so beautifully done and it's, uh, and it's, it's got meaning behind it and it's got these great, action scenes that I think are like that people I think you can like soak yourself in the film and just kind of go with the chase or you could actually be like oh this is actually uh, has some commentary in it as well yeah. on top of the um just the performances and your chemistry with Will Sampson was it was really interesting because you guys had kind of like a you were you definitely weren't at odds to the point where it was like you disliked each other but there was there was like this great headbanging but also respect that your characters had for each other that I really appreciated in the writing as well it was very well written yeah Again, um, I do read the script. You know, you see where the poles are, what you do, and what you, you know, but like I said, it's television, but that doesn't mean anything. It's still your work. And, uh, yeah. I think that's, now we take the work in guesting. It's like the same thing. It's that uh, it can be a nightmare. It's like uh, when you walk on the set and you know what you've got to do, what your work is that day, and what this, they're giving you the schedule and call sheet. But then the quote unquote star of the show comes out and says, oh, what is this crap? That's okay. Fine. You realize the first time they really looked at the script. And so you know you're going to waste a lot of time and you know that your scene is scheduled for later in the afternoon and everything's going to be rushed because the director's going crazy. And that's episodic television. The only thing I don't like about and why the movies were damn good were uh, television series, they may be dynamite, depends on who the producer, writer are, but they, they degenerate into people who are tuning in because they like the family, the people that are doing it. And so then it becomes a family drama and you're what was great about early guesting and doing them was that the part was well-written and uh, as it evolved and they got harder to do any of them, your role was right diminished. I mean, the role that you had was, uh, well, I did a medical center with uh, the guy that was starring in it, but you do it and the characters this way. And then the, when it comes to the climactic moment or something happening, the star of the show, you know, takes over and does what you would do and either yeah. tells you, you know, how it's to be done and what's that. And so it was him, it wasn't a defining moment, and you look for those. It's, oh, great! There's a payoff, for want of a better word. And I would look that for that directing also. It's uh, you're looking for. So I'm going back to the ones I'm, I was so fortunate with Relentless, with Visions, with Death Takes a Holiday, and The Astronaut. I was doing them early, and these were not written for television. These were movie scripts that were developed hard, working on them, and they had to adapt them to a 13-day schedule. Wow! So that the head of post at these studios became the man that ran it, because he said, "You can't do this." I remember what I was doing, one of the universal producers, and we were, I forget the show, it might have been Sarge or something with George Kennedy, or, oh God, a Colombo director or producer. Anyway, I'm sitting in and we're talking to him about the script. Budget guy comes in, look, we got to do this and so on, so you're going to have to check. And he goes, and then we're going to have to do so and so, and you need so and so. Okay, I just I just had to let you know this, and I had to hear it. So the guy left, and I said, damn, you're going to do with this? He said, no, no, I've learned to give good nod. <laughs> So you got to get yeah. it done. Yeah. You just, okay. I appeased you. Oh, now let me do my job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wes Irwin, who was like head of post-production Fox and then they, Disney bought him and how's he doing? He's now he's back at Fox and they're Disney's laying people off and doing things, but it's like floating and doing, you know, the budgeting. Yeah. Thing. I've done a lot of double roles, duels. Yeah. I guess you have. Yeah. Just that's the way it works out. Even playing Death Takes a Holiday and playing, I did Death to Holiday. It was one of the first shows I did in the junior college. It's just funny that I did it. It was excellent, excellent show. 
to me. I've done some bad things. A crisis worker is being bugged by a crank caller whose clues lead to murder and a surprise visit. What do you want? Don't you know, my precious? I want you. Now the killer's got her number. He's going to try and kill me, Justin. Kind of talking about having duality here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Hotline, where you're you're definitely playing like one oh, yeah. person with like two sides to him. And I love this movie so much. I probably of all your films, I think I've seen it more than any of the other ones. Mm. It's oh, it's fabulous. Everything mm. about it is perfect. It came out in like 1982, right when horror movies were kind of at their apex in the theater. And I wasn't old enough to get into those movies, but this was a pretty good substitute. It, it follows all the beats of mm -hmm. a good theatrical thriller. And I'm kind of curious because it's such an interesting character that you play in um, the movie. Do you remember what you thought when you read the script? Because it ended up being a pretty meaty part. It starts off where you're there. You're there and you're doing stuff, but then okay. by the end of it, you're like really important to the film. And I'm just curious what your memories are of, of reading for the part. I didn't read for it. I, just, they, I mostly was, I, don't, I almost never read for a part. They wanted me in mind when I came in, but uh, I read it. Jerry Jameson was directing. Yes. I like Steve. I knew him. I'd done 76. I'd done together tonight, Jefferson, Hamilton, and Burham. We toured the United States with Dane Andrews. Mm, wow. Jefferson. Oh, Steve Forrest's brother. Yeah. And Howard uh, Duff playing uh, Hamilton, and, and another guy was, it was an evening in 1789 or yeah, 1789. Three of them on the stage, written by Norman Colin, directed by Colin. Just a great piece. But I'd met uh, Steve a couple times after that, before it, and then after what we were rehearsing. It was a great trip, and then he was terrific. The script was good. I, as an actor, you're looking at where does it go and what happens to the character. Oh, I love that kind of cook. And then Jerry said, "We can do something." He put that very subtle makeup thing. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I kept, that's wonderful. I love it. But when he has her out, he's going to kill her. Something kept going wrong. I forget what the hell it was. She says, no, we've got to make this work. We've got to make this work. She said, I, I, we wanted you from the beginning. The scene wasn't working, but it did work. She was terrific. And everybody was good. It was, uh, God, I remember the scenes. It's right around in, in Malibu. It's in uh, Saddle Peak Lodge. And uh, we shot there. Remember the guy at the bar, the first scene, was in very sweet cheeks. That's right. I just thought it was terrific. I can't remember. We, we filmed it. I don't know if you know LA that well, but between you go into, you know, well, you're going through Malibu Canyon, and uh, there's that camp, the Salvation Army camp, and then there's this, but you hang a ride on Pyuma there, and you go on up to Saddle Peak Lodge, and that's Monte Nido. Monte, yeah, Monte Nido. Monte Nido's below Neon Corral Canyon. Uh, I'm trying to think what's there. El Nido or something. Mm. Anyways, all this looks like this. It's oaks. And They've been very fortunate, but it was really a hell of a location. And it was cold as hell. And uh, nighttime filming, freezing to the buns, trying to be cool. Uh, one of the things that sticks out to me about that movie is the phone calls. And I'm guessing, was that you on the other end? Yeah. So you don't sound like you have a very signature voice. I think if I have my eyes closed and I'm TV's on, I'm going to hear you and I'm going to say, that's Money Markham. But like, it was only this last time that I watched it when prepping for this that I thought, oh, maybe it sounds a little like him. But uh, tell me about like working with your voice on that. You did a really good job distorting the how you sound. Did you have to work at the making those phone calls? Was there like a practice period or rehearsal? Oh, well, yeah, we do them and then how we got to trick them up a little bit and the sound. Sound children. You talk like this or talk like that. Yeah. I, I've done a ton of voiceover, in particular with uh, video games, are so 
wonderful now and they're huge and they're so well written it's crazy writing it's like well hey come on in stranger uh we're just here waiting for you and when you pull up a chair the next line is yeah what do you want now you shouldn't come in here nobody nobody wants anybody new and the next one is what do you have and so it's like all these choices that are there for the player right well some of the but the writing if you take it whether it is it's uh it's good storytelling you get some really good sections. And so I did one for nearly a year and a half. It's space field. That's due to drop. Uh, we're supposed to, it's about a, nearly six months behind, but they just keep improving it and uh, looking before the end of this year to get it out. Oh, wow. Yeah, space field. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And I think in a lot of ways, video games are kind of like soap operas because it's kind of like these never ending worlds and, and, they have to keep them sort of open and, and the writing has to represent that. And then I guess at the same time, it's like a choose your own adventure, isn't it? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's interesting writing, interesting work. I had a good time with it. I, but you're always auditioning for them. I mean, it's like in voice work, you audition for everything. Your agent's running it. I remember I got a good agent way, way back and she said, well, no, I don't want to come up and do this. Look, look, look. She said, you may do a thousand and you get one. I said, Monty, man, I need you to come in. I said, there's a read for the Cadillac students and demos. I drove all the way. And it was rush hour and all of that from Wilshire. And the line was, it was 1989. The 19, I never forgot, 1989 Cadillac Alante. Now the world has a new standard in luxury roadsters. So I get a call back, said, they, they want you to do the demo. So I recorded that line and the demo and a few other. When they do demos, you just keep doing them. And the agency's working on them. With them, And then finally, they'll get approval on something. And Mr. Cadillac says, oh, okay, that's the campaign. And this is what the copy's going to be. And then the producers in Detroit, they, they, they said that Mr. Cadillac said, is that the voice you'd like to use? They said, yeah. He said, okay, fine. The only way to travel is Cadillac style. Alante by Cadillac. An uncompromising experience of automotive refinement in an ultra-luxury roadster. Let's go! Let's live! Let's love every mile! The only way to travel is Cadillac style! Well, I did it for three years, and then they changed. Uh, most of them will change. Richard Chamberlain came in after me and did the next Cadillac. And mm. But it paid a fortune, a fortune. And it was just amazing. As much as it, many major features are serious. Just, and that's why now, when I after the last writer's strike, and now with all of the equipment and all of the uplinking, and then I'm competing and going in and reading against people in Dubuque, Iowa. That just, you know, all you do is phone it in because you've got your own studio. And then there's services that will now they'll be recorded at home. But I did it, mm. and I listened to it. I hated it. I hated dealing with it. And then when I got the game, they were just opened up. You could come in, wear the mask. So I came to the studio and we're back there, and the halls were empty. I went right into the room and closed the door. And then I asked the engineer. I said, "I've got the equipment. Says, I'd so much rather not." He said, "I can do so much more for my work." So that was what I've been doing. So hopefully, I've dodged the bullet opening up again on that. It's interesting when you're talking about doing the car ads because I, I made some notes about some of your TV shows, and, and one of the ones I was interested in, well, a couple were Ricardo Montalban related, yeah. and you know his rich Corinthian leather ads <laughs> got him through the seventies. Until... Rich Corinthian, he <laughs> <laughs> was fantastic, but. One of my favorite um, fantasy islands is the episode where you play like half man, half dog, and Tony Tennille is your love interest. Saturday, Christmas wishes come true when a father and son find the love they'd lost, and an orphan finds the family he's never had. Merry Christmas! On the love boat. 
then on Fantasy Island, Tony Tennille meets the mysterious man of her dreams. Why won't you look at me? And comes face to face with horror. And it's like this, I think about this episode all the time. I, re, I remember it as growing up and, and, um, I would tell people about it and, and it, cause it's this great kind of gothic love story, but I was kind of curious about like the makeup for that. Like, do you remember like how long that took? Ben Lane was the, the Westmore of Columbia and he had his own product line. That's what you do. But he was not necessarily a hack, but it was like, all right, we'll do this and that. And then, so I was, he was now. Columbia merged with Warner's and, and they're over there, the Burbank Studios. And uh, so I got the script and I said, oh, Tony Tennille. I said, okay. And uh, so I went over went in the, and they said, they're working and they're ready to get, you know, I got you going. And said, all right, here, here. And he pulled up and it, I looked at it, it was like a fox face. Down yeah. <laughs> you know, like a dog. And he said, yeah, this will work, this will work, this will work. It's what they want. You know, I showed it to them and this will work. <laughs> I said, Jesus. And I remember he, I, spirit gum I've always hated. And, just put it all over my face. It goes on. And they just start adding fur and then the wig. And I kept looking at it. I said, damn, Ben, I look like a dog. No, I look great. It's good. They'll love it. So then we're ready to go. And I get a call. from. He said, oh, shit. They're not going to need you till after lunch. I had a shirt on Levi's, my boots. So I, you walk around a lot. And I walked around to see who's working. David Huddleston was on some stage. And so I turned in and opened the door. And the red light wasn't on open. I saw him his back. He was sitting and looking at the stage. <laughs> I walked up behind him. I said, hi, David. And he turned and said, hi, Marty, working? <laughs> <laughs> Russian has the voice right away, but it was like, that's David was one of the funniest men. Yeah, he seemed but, really great. Oh, he was. Was. Yeah. Great guy. Very, yeah, the great Lebowski, but Jesus. Um, very, very good man. Powerful drama, exciting action, and brilliant courtroom maneuvers highlight the new Perry Mason show, Watch Sunday, this fall on CBS. But I also called Bill Haber or Ron Meyer and said, oh, those guys still want me for Perry Mason. I said, they asked me that when I was going to New York to do Irene. I said, oh, God, no, I don't want to do that. And I said, uh, they still want that like a shot. And I was cast. Who was the, who was the head guy? He went from CBS to new president of the network, uh, ABC first, and then he went to NBC and then CBS. But he wouldn't decide on a Perry Mason, and he was driving the producers crazy. And so then I was cast under his head. He had a big press conference at the Jockey Club. I remember him sitting Silverman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a piece of work. Was that the last TV series that you did that where you were like the star? Yeah, well, I, when I started in Baywatch, I was starring as the Oh, cast. that's right, Baywatch, that's right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, just briefly, um, bought for 26 on the air, no pilot, and uh, paid me a lot of money. I went into it, and I got my directors, Leo Penn, Michael Hurley. He was the guy who did the uh, Kojak, the Night Stalker. And, well, Night Stalker was the film he did the pilot of. I think that was a TV movie. It was. Well, a good English director did that. Oh, John Llewellyn Moxie, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah that's I love him. Yeah, thank you. I loved him. And uh, there were three partners, Fox, CBS, and the Earl Stanley Gardner estate. And Mrs. Earl Stanley Gardner was the one left, and Courtney Jackson. But Gail Patrick, his wife, was the one that really created and ran that show. Mm -hmm. She was no longer around, and it was Courtney, and then he, he ran out of that. We all talked. Bill Self was Fox. Um, and forget who was at CBS, but we did the first show was, I came in off of Irene, I weighed 170 pounds, soaking wet, I've been dancing and singing and running, and um, it was a Cesar Chavez kind of out in the field, we shot at the uh, Malibu Creek Park house and that stuff, and then Andy, Zodiac, what was it? Andy, Rob Andy Robinson was the villain. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's great. Had a great time, and we were shooting and doing it, and then I met somebody else, and then we are doing something, and I put my hand as a woman and took her around and so on. So, so then Mrs. Earl goes into the 
the editing room and the chief says, no, no, Perry Mason doesn't put his hand on a woman's shoulder. Well, Perry Mason doesn't run. Perry Mason doesn't fight with somebody. It's over that. It's a big fist fight. And uh, I said, no, this is it. Well, they horny assuaged her and did something. Well, they, she kept up doing that. And every time they do something, no, she didn't want to see that. Didn't want to see After about 10 shows, the producers said, told, we can't, we're going to quit. We can't do this. We can't work this way. CBS talked to her and so did Corny Fox. And then we got to show number 14 or 15. She kept doing it. And then the show was kind of strange. It got good numbers, did well. Finally, they just said, we're just going to fold our tent and walk away. We can't do this. Oh, frustrating. So they paid me off. They paid Harry Gardino, everybody off. And uh, we did two more shows. We did, that was 13 after 13. We did 14 and 15 to give Apple's way with Ronnie Cox to get him time to get on the air. And that was the end of it. I did just after that, I turned down everything that came out. I just said, I can't do that. That was the first time to be shot down from inside. We worked our ass off on that show. Just really good actors, good directors, and uh, had a lot of quality to it. It's a good show. Yeah. I think it's been kind of maligned over the years, but I, I thought it was really good. Okay. Uh, I've got two more shows I want to talk to you about. Um, okay. I just real briefly, I, I'll save. Melrose Place for last because I have some questions. But um, you did, uh, I don't know how we're going to remember this, but you did an episode of Trapper John. And I yeah. actually do a side podcast on Trapper John. I've only done a handful of episodes, but I did yours, which was called Love is a Three Way Street, where you play a character named Beaumont, who's like very much about Beaumont and nobody else. And he's dating uh, Jessica Walter and, uh, and who's married, who's the ex wife of Trapper John, her character. And so Trapper John gets this kind of protective feeling of her, but your character is great. And so something I'd mentioned at the beginning was we hadn't really talked about uh, your work in comedy. Like the Golden Girls is clearly a very iconic role for you. And, um, and you were on the Mary Tyler Moore show and you started on second hundred years. So you've done comedy. I always see you as like the romantic hero, I think for things like death takes a holiday, you know, and the astronaut. And, and I always see you as kind of like this really debonair kind of hero type but you're really good at comedy. And, and I just was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your work in comedy and if you have a preferred genre that you like working in and anything about Trapper John you might remember. Penel Roberts, I've known him and uh, ran on him with something else that I said after he quit, he quit Bonanza. Yeah. And he said, no, I just couldn't. I commiserated with him. I might've been at Universal at the commissary. We had a damn good talk. I knew what he, you know, it's like saying, you know, like the people I had worked with and guessing with and doing it between series, but he just, uh, Henry Darrow was a great friend. He was at the Pasadena with me at that time. He became uh, Manolito and uh, he talked about Brunel and said he just hated it. He was doing that. And I said, I know. And he said, well, then we met again. And I knew his work in theater, and uh, but he took a lot of heat for that. But Trapper John was excellent. And the two, Frank Blixman and Al Ward, mm -hmm. they did it. But Jessica was, we didn't lock horns, but we would bang horns or do something. They'd do something. And I said, I, I, I said, no, I, I didn't feel like moving this way. And I did something like that. And she said, well, it's called moving pictures, Marty. You know, don't, <laughs> you, you, know, you want to hit her. That's it. But comedy is, uh, I, I had done, I, I, theater, I'd done a, I'd done a ton of comedy. I mean, every Broadway comedy when we did the 10 weeks, that was the big staple of it. And God, the moon is blue, and uh, I did that with Shepard Strudwick in Virginia Beach. And uh, we do the one act where I, he punches me and knocks me out, and I hit the floor. Well, it was rain it was so heavy that the tin roof or wherever we were filming hit. So Shepard went out after the that curtain and I came back. I don't think many of you heard that point, just the front row or so. And so, how many of you didn't? And they all back right. So we did the second act again, and I said, and I have to. He would hit me, and I made a 
clap with nobody could see it at the time. So you feel like, well, am I going to catch the trick? But no, I'd done dirty work at the crossroads and a lot of really crazy crap and uh, um, silly singing and dancing. When you hang up, you write a note to yourself to go on YouTube and look for uh, Monty Markham and ca Campus Cops. That dog will hunt, sir. What is a woman, Hingle? A woman is not a man, I can tell you that. Uh, no, sir. Except on Thursday nights in that one bar in Seattle. But no man ever had the bumps that plagued my dreams, that woke me screaming in the middle of the nights, crunched up around my neck, my tinfoil jammies that keep my life juices from being sucked away from me in my sleep. I used to make them as a boy, you know. Jammies, sir? Women, out of paper mache and carpet remnants. Then I'd hide them away in my closet of secret pleasures. But I have never understood them, Hingle. When I lose my precious seed in that moment of passion, I had no idea that 20 years down the road, I'd be putting $400 dresses on it and calling it Stacy. This was written by the two guys, Mad Men from Canada. John uh, Landis produced it. They wanted uh, Animal House uh, with campus police. And I was playing Dean Pilkington, and I had a, uh, a character that was the chief of the police of the thing, and he was like, it was like Hook and Smeed. And Hook would be ranting about something and be, oh, yes, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Hook, yeah, okay. yes, Captain. Well, it was that kind of a thing. And it was, they opened, the other four would be four young people. And unfortunately, none of them were that good. And the writing didn't work for them. They couldn't make it work. But these two guys had written the last two or three years of Johnny Mark Carson's monologues. Mm. And their stuff was just crazy. I mean, every show would open with Tilkington. What is a woman, Smeed? A woman is not a man, I can tell you that. On set, set on Thursday nights in that one bar in Seattle. The crew would laugh their butt off, so we'd do one without filming. So they get it out of their system, we tried to do it so they could laugh. And that was it. And I did nine of those. And it was just wonderful. And it got kept getting rich. And so USA is cable. And they held off, tried to figure out whether they wanted it, how they wanted it. And John said that they're working on it. They want to do more of the dean and stuff. I said, okay. So whatever you do, they said, well, then I got a call and saying, they've gone past the pickup. So that if they're going to do the back nine, another, they're definitely doing the first 13 of the second year in which everybody had salary bumps and all of that thing coming through. And said, but all of the actors have to agree to waive that requirement and we'll go ahead and pick up the back nine here. So that's, well, that's a no-brainer. Well, of course, somebody said no. Oh. And they've never done, I've never seen any of them ever again. Oh, no. No, none of the four actors. Oh, the, the guy was a pretty good character actor, but I never really saw it. I didn't watch that much television. But I, I, I still see Landers all the time at the Academy. And I thought, say, Mark, like, the two writers were wonderful. McVickers and something else, or Scott and McVickers. Anyway, punch it up. There was about quite a few Monty Markham comedy. Uh, I did two or three clips, and you'll get a taste of it. Then. Tonight, meet an advertising man who's fed up <laughs> with his high-pressure job, his family, his daughter's boyfriend, have a pamphlet. And his charming wife. They're driving him to drop out. Dick Van Dyke, Marriott Hartley, drop out father tonight. May I have your credit cards? Yeah, well, you did a movie, a TV movie called uh, Dropout Father with Dick Van Dyke. And your character in that was really great. And I wish he'd been in the I almost wish he had his own movie because it's such a 
I've never seen you play a Lothario quite like that before. Thank and you, he was you. he was a sleazebag, but in a really fun way. Not Rhea, the whipped cream. I didn't mean it. No, no, no. Your character and like Rhea Perlman's in it. I mean, it says amazing cast. And oh. but like like the your moments on screen were just magical for me. And I and I was thinking, you know, I I know he's done comedy, but I haven't really like I end up watching like hotline or that takes a holiday so I'm, or that fantasy island you know it again goes back to this kind of like romantic kind of gothic sort of thing i think i like I um, style do the same thing if you look them up ever. i have a bunch of those so i probably have the episodes you're in so i should yeah. i should look that up but but going to the opposite end of the spectrum the last show i wanted to ask you about was melrose place because i think that's another hoodoo that was a ridiculously dark role. And it was, and when I watched all of Melrose Place, and when that happened, uh, for people who aren't listening, you were Allison's father. Allison was one of the main characters. And we found out that he had been molesting his daughters. She had a sister, played by Tracy Nelson. And it had been this dark secret in the home. I'm not sure the mother had known, but your response to her afterwards was really nasty. And um, and you're Monty Markham, and you're this like really sweet, great guy. And here you come playing this role where you seem really nice at the beginning and then things start to fall. And then we find out that you've done these awful things. And I'm just curious, A, I don't know if you got the part because you had a previous relationship with Aaron Spelling. I know it goes all the way back to like, I think the late sixties. And, and he just thought of you and, and how did you prepare for that role? Because like, I don't know how people go to that kind of dark spot. And I don't know if as an actor, you can talk about it because it was, it was surprisingly dark even for a soap opera. And so if you could just talk about playing Allison's father in Melrose place, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> it was well-written. I uh, understood what the writer was doing. And then you, once you agree and understand that this man could do this and did do this. And I wasn't familiar with the, well, if you're familiar with every idea of abuse and that kind of thing. But the thing about playing quote unquote, villains or dark roles. One of the writers, and the original writer, Perry Mason, he said, the thing everybody forgets is that a guy does something, they, they don't think they're ever going to get caught. And they do it because they want to do it. And they can justify anything. And I, it was an interesting line about uh, people confessing on the stand or doing what they do. Perry Mason stuff. But getting back to that kind of thing, it's like once you know that's what the characters, that's what we're going to, you don't not play it. Acting is believing and acting is creating character that you can believe and you can feel and you can, he never thinks of himself as an abuser. He's long since passed that. And the wife has been unable to whatever it was. And there's a dark side to people that you never see the, uh, it's like Marlon Miranda with one-eyed jacks. You never see the other side. And I've played characters like that in the sense that they're going to go the wrong way. And that, in plays, Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar. It's like he rapes Blanche and Stella uh, heard from Blanche and uh, he screams for her and uh, she forgives him. And that was the point of the play is that Stanley had no guilt about what he did, but he doesn't want to lose her. And then she responds by going to him and that destroys Blanche and sends her completely over the edge. So that's in simple terms, you're looking at cause and effect, what happens. What's her name? The gal that played my daughter, she's wonderful, believable actress. I mean, just a great quality. Yeah, Courtney Thorne-Smith, I think. Yeah, I wasn't a fan of the show. I just thought it was soap. But there were young actors all working and doing good. But she was particularly good. Did and you know Did you know that uh, when you started, because it's kind of a little arc here in a few episodes, did you know that you were going to go to that point or yes. when you started? Yeah. 
and they knew that this is gone. He ends up writer saying that he abuses. They find out that he's abused his daughter. Okay, so let me read it. Yeah, okay. But there was a couple of good people that I, that I really liked and something, but I never had a lot of work with them. It was just bits and pieces, really. But it sounds like it was dark, but it had some resolution, somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Those you don't like, you just drop in and you drop out, and whatever happened to that? You know, they, they didn't have anything for you to do. Well, what you do do isn't that. So I'm an actor first and foremost to my bones. I love that more than anything in the world. I have great respect for actors, good actors in the work. But it's like you show up and you do the work. I've been very fortunate. And you find good work and you do good work. And uh, I came at the time when you, you didn't have to read or you didn't do that or you didn't meet with people. But then it's a whole different world now. Mm-hmm. And I did a horror picture, Edge of Somewhere. But it was a the guy had a speech and we shot it from, the guy shot it with a Canon EOS or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, little camera. Yeah. He shot it in Big Bear. He shot it in very rustic, different, but it was a, a guy who had taken his family up to the edge of the forest or where nowhere and inbreeding. Mm. And then when they died, they ate them, butchered. And they would capture people that, you know, you're going to have to stay with us, you know. We need new blood. We need to, you know, and they, if they don't convert, then you kill them and you eat them. And he could justify all of this. And they ate. That was part of it. It's part of the circle of life. It's a, a good cast, good people. Very rough filming, but uh, edge of edge of isolation. Oh, this here is the Polifer Homestead. For nearly 150 years, it's been right on this spot. Come on, eat up. Good meat. What is it? I'm leaving. Oh, it's nothing you gotta worry about. You'll stand here, right, honey? You have to see what they are. Then you'll understand. You shouldn't. Wander to the woods at night. Well, there are some people you say you don't ever want to see them do that. But Andy Griffith played in Facing the Crowd. Yeah. Well, Andy had a taste of it. Andy was a damn good actor. He's a great actor, yeah. Yes. But to have that taste of that kind of heavyweight role and to be able to sustain it with top people. Burt Reynolds was here behind me with the man that got us both started. Burt had done some silly stuff. And he got deliverance and deliverance was that kind of meat. And he always wanted to have that kind of a role again, but his natural instincts and everything led him more to look, everybody loves me doing this. He was an extremely bright man and extremely talented. And, uh, but his life mirrored everything he was doing. And it, he, he was really broken up from all of the stunt and all that stuff. He paid a heavy price for it. Yeah. But uh, look, I'm cliche, most fortunate, but, all of the work I've done is the result of those who were there that I worked with from the beginning. It's, it makes a difference in what you accept to do. So you're always looking to work and work with good people, something that's worthwhile. And the saddest thing about it is like, you know, for everybody, women, I mean, my God, the actresses, it's all true. There's just fewer roles in your age range or what you look like or what you sound like. But the other thing is diversity. I don't know how, I don't know how actors make it today in the sense of, I never aware of it when you were working at the guild but there's something called the conversation I talked about an actress that I, I had the best year of my life and i only made twenty five thousand dollars. that's what they're paying right and the wife says you're 50 years old i said what do we do you need to find something else to do to support yourself and us and i'm working and you're not working and you're doing this and that happens a lot but it happens a lot when i'm also guest starring the first fbi i did the second one i did morris evans was a guest star i was a guest star Morris Evans was a top Shakespearean actor on Broadway. I was playing a suave jewel thief, but I was paid $10,000 for top of the show. And about 1970, late 70s or something, the 
somebody said, we're going to lower it. And they all agreed to 2,500 would be like, you can negotiate if you can work it, but it went to 2,500. You can't do 10 guest stars and make $25,000 because you can't live like that. You can't right. live like that. So Chet Migdon was head, uh, executive secretary. I was on when uh, Dennis Weaver, and he said, we can't do anything about it. He said, the, the rank and file won't strike with you for, for you getting top of the show. I said, we're the ones that make the guild work. And he said, it's, we went round and round. It's frustrating. But it is, it's real. But uh, getting back to, for one of a better one, I just have to tell you, it's the work. I mean, if it's wild and crazy role, uh, I'll play wild and crazy. I mean, I've done some really strange stuff. It never sees the light of day. They didn't sell it or they didn't go there. And it says, how, how outrageous can you be? And you learn that. <laughs> Janae's the balcony. My God, I'm running around in Cathernai, the high top boots and shoes and everything is exaggerated. Chief of police turns his back to the audience, takes a, a bayonet. You know, he's castrating himself. Thanks. So I walk out up to the theater and patrons are still there at the Marine Memorial in the San Francisco and you're walking out of it. And the guy comes up to me and kept looking at me. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah. It's like Kathy Ross played the whip girl in, uh, in the cell in this brothel. And she's got straps covering pertinent area, but she whips this guy and, and he screams the wig and she gives him the wig. He puts it on and he says, the lice, the lice. <laughs> there. And then she whips him again. That's Kathy Ross. It was great. She was 18 or 19 at the time. Wow. So you do stuff that it feels right. And then you know, a young man in uh, Equus, you know, he's naked on the stage. And I don't know that I would ever do that. I don't know. I never was called upon to do it. I, uh, when I worked at a workshop, I could never, I always played the, uh, the Caucasian. I never played the, I could never play a Jew. You know, it's like they would do great shows like The Wall, good things. But you're, you're saying, you know, I was doing a dub. There's a lot of dubbing going on of uh, Spanish, French, mm, yeah. German uh, series that they're all grabbing them. I can't stand, it's, there's a couple of them that really have a damn good dub. And the best ones are the, the Danish, because they have Danish actors doing English dub. Oh, interesting. Now, not the actor that's playing the role, they may have too thick an accent, but Bridge and a couple of others, or the gate of the tunnel, the tunnel. Yeah. But I was doing one till life do us part, and it was a Spanish family, generations, and they would imagine the big estate would be used for weddings, and they would plan and all work on it. And I played the grandfather. He was like a prize, a prize fighter and everything else. And he was kind of rough. And his son is having trouble with his wife. And his grandson is having trouble with his wife, not his wife, as a girl. The gal kept coming out. Well, you sound, no, it was like the line. And what she was trying to say was, like you said, it's like uh, you recognize the voice. And the voice would have like, a, I sounded too good, meaning too, the educated voice cut through rather than the, uh, the salty grandfather. And it was, a good, it was a good direction that I understood what she was talking about. So then I was able to correct it. You don't think about it that much. You're just trying to do the dub crazy. Oh, that sounds complicated because you've got to have your mind on how they're talking and then get the intonation right. And and how good the quality of them. Yeah. We call it dust boot. Yeah. Louis Elman, audio uh, ADR guy in England, and he invented, I don't. I still don't know how he did it, but the actors in dust boot dubbed their own voices, most of them. That, that leading actor man that became a leading actor in American. You're in yeah, Prague now, right? Yeah, I did a six-hour miniseries. It was in English, Jack, H-O-L-D-O-R, and Jack Holborn. Six-hour miniseries, a New Zealand co-production for TV South. And the German company was the German crew. And they filmed all up Yugoslavia and then flew over to New Zealand and shot there and the Cook Islands. It was a great 1780s. Wow. It was a hell of a show. Um, but I was the resident uh, at 
great role. And uh, Terrence Cooper, who was the the real James Bond in Casino Royale, uh, the original playback, marvelous character, big bigger than life man. And then there was a good German actor, Matthias Habisch, that's in some good German films. Well, we it was just a great shoot, and uh, but it was all you knew you're going to have to dub every line you did because there was no production sound. So there's track sound, and the guy with the the boom mic. We'd be doing a scene, and you see we were right on the right on the uh, the coast, the Brovnik, and up and down. And so, but you could shoot straight through. We had the nine sailing vessel out of uh, Sweden. And if you didn't move the camera left or right, you could move it a little bit more. There'd be Mercedes and the BMWs all parked. But the architecture of the arches and the, and the lighting and things that the torches were there, and you could always use that. And then we go out in the uh, Adriatic, sail the ship out, and film all over, and then come back. Wow. So you started all the way down to Sutomora in the south, Montenegro, and then go all the way up to Rijeka in the north. It was a great shoot. Magical, magical. One of these actor dreams. And my uh, wife was with me the whole time. My son for, he was 14. But it was just a great shoot. But comes the day, and Louis shows up in L.A., and we go in, and we start dubbing. So I had my, I knew I was going to be dubbing. And that's how the European films were working all the time. I mean, they just filmed during the noise and the hammering and building the sets. Once you remove all of that, you can really fly. Yeah. I finally got the tapes, got a transfer of it, so I have it all. It's just it was okay. a good time. But we were doing one particular sequence, and Louis says, I can't I can't hear anything. So I can barely hear you. I don't know what happened here. But, and I remember distinctly, I'm talking and acting, and I remember looking at Uli, like this, looking at me. And then some pretty girls walked by, and he just kind of... <laughs> Looked away. But I had it in my script. I could, you know, I have good retention. It's like, I envy the actors that can pick it up. Say, ah, got it. Jimmy Garner was that way. He could read the page. But I would shed, but I almost never forget. And I can remember lines forever, but it's, uh, it was good. Telepictures, I took it to them. I had a great demo tape. And they looked at it and said, it was at the moment, this would be 1982. And he said, American television, they're not buying. Suddenly, they're not buying dumb oh. films. Prior to that, everything was done. You know, had, you know, Fellini, all of these films. And... Uh, they stopped showing it and they stopped the television. Hmm. Odd. Yeah, it is. And kind of sad, I guess, because it's Anything a else? good product. Nope, that's it. I think you answered all of my questions. Um, and I really appreciate it. Pardon me? Your last chance, Amanda. No. <laughs> no, I think I got them all. I think we hit all the TV movies I was interested in and um, and I got a little bit of background on all of them. And so I'm really excited about that and I appreciate you taking the time. There was Dropout Father and there was the other Disney film. Oh, you're talking about like the Ghosts of Buxley Hall? That I haven't seen. You should. Uh, Yeah, you said a lot about it when you made it in interviews. Every funny, every good Broadway comedy actor, meaning whether it was musical or otherwise, guys that could do musicals, guys could do Pal Joey or whatever it was, and and, and just damn good. And Victor French. Oh. And French was just a, a life force, a wonderful man, wonderful actor. I don't know if you've seen a lot of his work, but I'm familiar with him for sure. He's a pistol, a pistol, really. A pistol. Anyway, take good care of yourself and thank you. You Bye. too. No, thank you. I absolutely appreciate this. This means so much to me.
TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Made for TV Mayhem show. Uh, God knows when this is going online, but we are recording this uh, sometime at the beginning of June. We're really excited to be here because this is a particularly special episode because um, if you listen to the first half of it, you may have noticed that it wasn't us talking about movies, but it was me talking to Monty Markham, the great and wonderful Monty Markham, who is this tremendous actor whose resume... I can't even synopsize without taking up like an hour of recording time. Um, he did so many things, but he especially did uh, some really wonderful TV movies at, during the kind of heyday of the made-for-TV movie. And he sat down and talked to me about a lot of his films, or I think every film almost that I think he'd been in that was made for television, and gave us some insight about Hollywood at the time in the ABC movie The Weeknd, which is I think where Visions of Death first aired, which is one of the movies we'll be talking about tonight, as well as a movie from 19. 19- titled Hotline, which he co-starred with Linda Carter um, in that. And um, he just was wonderful. He's in his late 80s now. Um, He's very bright, uh, really warm and thoughtful. And uh, one of the things I made in my notes when I was pulling together his bio was that he's really interested in praising other people. He's pretty humble, uh, but he's an extraordinary talented actor, and I'm so happy to be putting a spotlight on him for this. And so tonight is just me and Dan. Nate couldn't make it, which is unfortunate because I know he really likes Hotline, but I think five minutes with Nate will be making a return when we're finally able to get him back on here. But for now, let's just say hey to Dan. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm doing good. I um, I uh, I actually uh, I I went uh, Monty Markham crazy right before us, and I watched the two uh, episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man where he plays the Seven Million Dollar Man. There you go. Which are great, and he's great in those. Yeah, he's great in everything. He he he's. I think we'll see his range in the two films we're talking about in particular. And we actually covered one of his films a while ago. He did uh, Death Takes a Holiday. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, which is a movie that I love. And he talks a lot about that in the interview. He really liked making that movie. And one of the things he talked about that I think was so interesting, and I think Visions, also known as Visions of Death, which is I think the first one we'll talk about tonight, is um, that th- these weren't necessarily scripts that were made for television, but these were scripts that the studios had and that they were hoping to maybe generate into a theatrical but the TV movie was becoming so popular, so they were taking these things that they had either optioned or whatever, hired a writer, and um, and were sitting there, and they thought, let's make this into something for television. And so he said that that was kind of what made them different back in the day, because um, they were kind of more theatrical uh, aesthetically or in their mind, in the studio's minds, they were shooting for something bigger than I think what the TV movie is normally recognized as, if that makes sense. And, um, and so... Uh, It'll be really interesting to talk about Visions of Death because it is a really well put together film. Um, and uh, so, what have you been up to, Dan? Uh, what have I been up to? I've been uh, I've been writing, writing uh, my uh, my new uh, Doctor Who related book. Um, I'm uh, I actually uh, I, as of as of this moment, I have finished writing Doctor Who originally ran for 26 years back in the 60s through the 80s, and I've written reviews for all 680 episodes. Wow! And um, next up is actually the TV movie. From the mid '90s, wow. I'll be watching the Doctor, the Doctor Who TV movie, and then going to the modern day stuff. But that's what I've been doing there, and you know, doing of course eventually Super Train with you, uh, talking to Lucan with me, and um, and hanging out, watching a lot of movies. I've been watching a lot of horror movies online lately. 
Um, so many, in fact, that if if I don't write down the titles, I don't remember things that I've watched. I watch them and then they, it's 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 weird. It's like it's even worse than when like I was in college and I would like rent like two or three days a week. I would go down into Ithaca, New York, and I would rent like ten movies and come back and make copies of all of them and just absorb all these movies. This is even worse because I just, you know, I just sit there and I go, ooh, and I start a movie and I watch it and 75 minutes later, I'm done and have forgotten it. Yeah. I watch a lot of shorter movies. I remember, I was just thinking about this the other day, I remember when I was younger, um, I would try to go out as many nights as possible because I was in my 20s, but like there was always one night a week where I would go, we had a 24-hour video store where I lived Mm. in Vegas called Video Park. And at the time, it was considered the largest video store in the world. I don't know if it was, but that's what they called themselves. And it was huge. And um, and I would rent, like, six movies, like, at midnight when I got oh. off work. And uh-huh. then I would go home, and then I would watch, like, four of them before I went to bed. <laughs> and nice. then I would and then I would get up, and I would watch the remaining two. And I was like, how did I do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, lately, I've been just, I just been like, I'll, I'll sit down, and, and I'll put on... Um, uh, Amazon Prime or I'll put on Tubi or YouTube and I'll just usually I've been watching a lot of found footage yeah yeah films good stuff and uh, and um, and I've watched all of them from you know sort of really professional looking ones there are, I have seen more movies set in old abandoned hospitals or asylums in the last three months than I've seen the entirety of my life wow. and most of them are pretty good yeah I have to say it's an interesting subgenre yeah, and, it, and every once in a while you get one of those found footage ones where they're they're so intent upon building the suspense that the movie ends and you think, oh, nothing happened. But that that doesn't happen often. But every once in a while I'll get one of those. But generally they're they're a lot of fun. Although occasionally you will get one or two of them where it's just like it'll be like a guy sitting in his living room, like like looking around. Oh, did you hear that? Oh, and I'm thinking, is this an actual movie I'm watching, or is this just like some guy? Brought out the camera and we just thought, put, yeah, why not? Put it on YouTube and put found footage film. Yeah, why not? So, but yeah, just just watching movies, writing, um, hanging out. Cool. Looking forward to talking, Markham. I got I got some notes. I got some uh, thoughts. Perfect. Well, then we should dive right in. So let me just briefly go over his bio. I will say I cribbed this from an earlier podcast episode I did for Trapper John because he played uh, he already appeared in one of the few episodes I've been able to get online um, and talk about and so this may be repeat for like the four people who've listened to my Trapcast but um, otherwise uh, I will tell you um, you probably heard all about him here so I'll keep it very short but he was uh, as you know an extremely popular and is uh, a easily recognizable character actor uh, some interesting things about him he was class president when he graduated from Palm Beach High School in 1953 his classmate Burt Reynolds was a year behind him they were actually pretty friendly um, he would go on to get a master's degree in English literature um, at, and theater from the University of Florida I think he talks about that at the beginning of the interview I did um, he made his television debut on Mission Impossible in 1966 uh, one thing I remember talking about was um, he he had supposedly appeared in about 150 plays before he got into film and television. And when we did the interview, he says, I don't think it was that many. But as he started going through his memories, he's like, it might have been that many, Amanda. Um, you know, he, he was extremely prolific. And one of the things um, he said 
uh, in the 60s when he first uh, was breaking into film and television was that uh, you needed to, quote, dig your well deep as you can because you're going to be drawing from it for the rest of your life, end quote. So um, so theater for him was a way to, like, build to other things and to get that kind of under his belt. And also I think he really enjoyed theater. And um, one of the things that always stood out to me about him was that he never really looked down on TV. He always believed it was the actor's job to take any role that they could and bring quality to the performance. Um, and, and I don't think anything was beneath him in terms of, like, oh, it's for TV, whatever. I'm only going to do this. And he worked in everything. And so I love that he respected this venue that doesn't get uh, as respected as it should sometimes. Um, now, of course, he kind of made a big break for himself in the late 60s when he was cast in two parts in a sitcom titled The Second Hundred Years. Um, the series didn't do well, though, and it was canceled after one season. Uh, the basic synopsis of it was, according to IMDb, the misadventures of a man who is revived out of a decade's of accidental suspended animation and is still physically half the age of his own son and matches the age of his grandson. So after that, he did a, another TV show called Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Um, and of course, he was con he was cast in the controversial reboot of Perry Mason, which uh, aired in 1973. He was uh, chosen out of 250 potential candidates for the role. Um, now, if you've seen the new Perry Mason you know that it's probably much better than the critics gave it credit for. I really enjoy it. Um, I think it's just that Raymond Burr was so burned into our brains, you know, that we had a hard time kind of separating him from his uh, Perry Mason character. So uh, I think his first TV movie was uh, the 1971 adaptation of Death Takes a Holiday, which I mentioned we covered on our main podcast. So there's no point in going into it. You can go back and look at that. That's one of my favorite TV movies. He really enjoyed it too. He has a lot of... Um, Great memories about making that film, which he talked about. Uh, he did a couple of other really important TV movies. He did um, something called The Astronaut, which came out, uh, I think, the year after Death Takes a Holiday. And that's uh, a really interesting film. Um, and, you know, when I do my lectures about TV movies, I often talk about The Astronaut because it kind of provides a perfect blueprint for the types of domestic themes that the TV movie was seeking to explore. Um and I just, I really like it, and he's wonderful in it. Uh, and then he would go on to continue to work in episodic television. I think most people recognize him best for playing Blanche's gay brother Clayton on The Golden Girls. Um, and of course, he was Allison's lecherous father on Melrose Place, which is like the darkest I've ever seen Money Markham, and he's great in it. He was, of course, also on Baywatch in Dallas. You may remember Danny played Clint on Dallas, Sue Ellen's Love Interest. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Clint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Wow. Yeah, he's done it all. He's done it all. Yes. He worked Yay. with Linda Gray. You know, after that, where do you go? Where do you go? <laughs> exactly. And and he and he worked on Melrose Place. I mean, he's done everything and and the Golden Girls. So, anyway, so we're just going to dive into the two movies which I mentioned we're covering, which is Visions, which is also known as Visions of Death, and uh, Hotline. And so Dan's going to go ahead and give us a breakdown of Visions. Take it away, Dan. Precognition is not very precise, but I do have a feeling that the bomb is going to go off very soon. Maybe tonight. But look, Sergeant, I realize I haven't given you much to go on, but please, I beg you, do something about it. Investigate. Hey, look, Professor. You say you had a vision. But you don't know where the bomb's planted, you don't know who planted it. Only a feeling of when it's gonna go off. I mean, now you tell me. Where do I begin to investigate? In Visions, Mr. Markham plays Professor Mark Lowell, who's um, 
uh, I, I forget what he teaches. It's some sort of science, I believe. And uh, he drives around in a, in a nice little convertible. And, you know, everybody loves him on the campus. But the tricky thing is he's also a psychic. And he begins to see visions of uh, basically a mad bomber. He's, he's in – they're in Denver. And he goes to the police and tells them, hey, I'm a psychic. There's a mad bomber. And the police say, thank you, sir. We'll take that into consideration. And a building blows up. like a, I, It's some sort of factory or something blows up. And uh, Telly Savalas is in charge of the, the case, finding the mad bomber. And he plays Lieutenant Keegan, I believe is the name. And he he hears about this gentleman, Professor Lowell, who psychically – I you know, put that in quotes. Although he did actually – Telly Savalas' character puts it in quotes. Um, psychically – saw the bombing and believes basically that Mark is the bomber, some sort of schizophrenic kind of thing. So he brings Mark in and puts him through a battery of tests and such. Been briefed? Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, brilliant men usually are. Did you study the polygraph? Uh-huh. Well, he's our man, Bert, and I'm going to nail him. Uh, when he was asked if he planted the bomb, his blood pressure and his pulse and his respiratory rate are the same when he verified his address. That doesn't exactly nail him. Okay, so you're the psychiatrist. You tell me. Who can fool a polygraph? A psycho? A Jekyll and Hyde? Oh, I see. You have a theory that Lowell's uh, schizophrenic and split personality with information leaking back and forth, huh? Exactly. I'm convinced that Lowell doesn't even know he's the bomber. But supposing he really is clairvoyant? He's a psycho! He blew up a plant! He killed three people! And then basically, as Mark is in the middle of all this, he gets a vision of another, even bigger bomb threat from this crazy mad bomber. And he has to more or less convince um, Lieutenant Keegan that he's not the bomber, and they have to go off and stop a lot of people from being killed but will will uh, Mark be able to convince Lieutenant Keegan, or will Telly Savalas be, you know, kind of ordering and crotchety about it? I don't know. Do people get saved? Do people blow up? I'm just going to stop it there. It's the psychic and the cop with Telly and Monty, or there's Monty and Telly. I like that title, the psychic and the cop. Psychic and the cop premiering <laughs> on that, ABC. But that that's basically it. He plays a psychic who's desperately trying to convince the man in charge that he's not a crazy person who's pretending to. Um, see these bombings before the next bombing occurs. So before we dive into this, I wanted to mention, just because it's on my mind and I'll forget it if I don't mention it now, but do you remember when I was doing those live tweets during like the heart of lockdown mm-hmm. and I did a movie called Mind Over Murder yeah. with Deborah Raffin? And do you remember that was about a girl who finds out she's psychic and connected to a mad bomber? This beautiful girl is about to have her life shattered. Susie. She discovered who murdered a plane load of people, but no one will believe her. He was here! You have to believe me! Not even her lover. I really don't. And desperation turns into raw fear as Deborah Raffin is pursued by a killer in Mind Over Murder, Tuesday at 9, 8 Central. It's like the same movie. Yeah. But with like a female mm-hmm. psychic, and there's no cop. Well, there is sort of, it's not a cop element, it's like the FAA guy uh-huh. kind of comes into her life. Yeah. As her, and he becomes her love interest, but like it's it's like also like this weird tangential connection to somebody she never knew before. Yes, and her also, but but at this would I think the big difference maybe in this 
well, there's a couple of big differences, but one of the big differences is that Monty Markham has known he's been psychic. Yeah. Where she discovers it in that movie. Mm-hmm. But they're very similar and they're interesting the way they flipped the gender and kind of changed some of the dynamics and told the same mm-hmm. story in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know? And um and so I wanted to bring that up in case anybody had seen Mind Over Murder um and liked it, then they should check out this movie if they haven't seen it yet. And I'll just go first here about whether or not I liked it because <laughs> I'm sure you haven't seen it. Am I right? I had not. I had not yeah. seen it. Okay, so I, I love this movie. I came in kind of late to it. I discovered it a few years ago, I think because it got a DVD release. And I was like, oh, look, a TV movie that I'm not that familiar with. And so I watched it. And there's a lot of elements about this film that I really like. And one of them goes back to one of the things that the TV movie does that a lot of theatricals don't, is that often there's... How do I explain this? Telly Zavallis comes across as like an antagonist to Markham's character as the Mm -hmm. cop who's like, Oh God, this guy's a psychic. Sure. He's probably the bomber. Right. And so, but then they end up forming a friendship and he supports Markham. And you see a lot of this in the TV movie where there's a very specific bad guy. And, um, and then the other characters kind of support each other in the fight against the bad guy. And it's obtuse, but a lot of this times this happens in movies that are like disaster films that are made for television Mm -hmm. where the disaster is the bad guy. And then everybody else yeah. is pulling for the good person, you know, that's trying to solve all the problems and stuff. And I like that aspect. And you don't necessarily see that in a lot of theatricals. Um, and so this is kind of a refreshing film for me in that way. Also, I, I just like the dynamic between Telly Savalas and Monty mm-hmm. Markham. I think it's really great. And I love Joseph Sorolla, yeah. who plays the bomber. And I love Barbara Anderson. I think the cast is great. Um, and so I was really pleasantly surprised when I revisited it to interview Monty Markham how really wonderful this was. And particularly when I did some research on it, it was really well received uh, by critics, which Mm. was nice. Um, And so um, I think this is kind of an underrated TV movie. I don't know that a lot of people know about it, which is interesting because it's a genre film and and everybody's all over genre TV movies, but it's one that has for some reason slipped through the cracks, but it's, it's a pretty great movie. So I'm really excited. We're finally talking about it. So Dan, why don't you tell me what you thought about it? I uh, well, uh, when it started off, um, I, I just saw one sentence synopsis of it, and I was I couldn't remember whether I this was one I had read about previously and thought, oh, I should watch that eventually or not. But um, when it started, I saw that it was written by the guy who wrote Escape. Yes, I saw that, which you know is one of my all time favorites. So yeah. I thought I already like it, <laughs> and and in fact, I I, I I I did really enjoy. It. I like how it's. It's it's no nonsense. It gets right in there. It just goes and goes and goes. It doesn't stop. And and Telly is is you know he's he's uh, Monty is very sort of well uh, sorry Mark is very sort of sincere in what he's doing. I love the fact that he does have you know it isn't like I I just got this for the first time and I don't know what's going on. You know the thing is uh, I just love the fact that it's a psychic who's like for years I've had this and I tell people and. Nothing ever happens, and it's kind of kind of rotten. <laughs> and yeah. you know, just just the moment some it, he's able to finally stop something bad from happening, just the look on his face, the joy of 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 it is is fantastic. And it's something I've never actually seen. I don't think in a film like with a psychic before. So that was cool. And then Telly's great, and he looks good. The first time you see him, he's got his shirt really buttoned down really far, and he's looking sharp. He's looking cool, and you know, he's and, and occasionally, you know, his sort of um. Going after uh, uh, Marcus, uh, you know, maybe maybe, a, maybe a, a bit much. But the interesting thing is that no one ever really 
and I guess this is maybe a seventies thing, but there's there you don't really get that point where someone goes a psychic. Uh, everyone's kind of like, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, they're they're not they they don't they don't fully believe, but they don't disbelieve. It's and and there's something cool about that. Even Telly doesn't. I I, I got to call it, Lieutenant Keegan doesn't um, fully disbelieve, but he's trying to find that bomber. He thinks that Mark is the bomber because Mark is the only person who. You know, Mark knew it was going to happen. And and but the thing I love is that Mark is or, or Lieutenant Keegan is like he he's rough on Mark the whole time, putting him through this battery of tests, wearing him down, wearing him down. But the moment he gets the realization that, oh, he's not the bomber and, and the professor is actually helping us, they become like he he's like he 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 doesn't like take Mark under his wing, but he's like, OK, you know, you you helped us. We're going to protect you, and we're going to help you. And they they become kind of pals and and help out. And it's it's um, it I I like the way it's done because there's no like I said, it's no nonsense. There's no BS. It dives right in. It tells its story. There aren't any side trips here or there. There there is one there is one scene which I'll, I'll mention maybe later where I was like I was like eh, I don't know this one could have been trimmed slightly, but in general it just it moves and it goes and it tells its story and it's suspenseful throughout and it's it's exciting. And it's fun and um, and it works. I mean, I've always said my favorite time period for TV movies is around here where they were all like 73, 74 minutes long because I think that's the perfect length for movies. Yeah. And this one I think is a really nicely done one. And it's suspenseful and exciting right up to the end. And so, yeah, I, I give this one a thumbs up. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's such a surprising little movie. And I'm just shocked that more people aren't talking about it. Yeah. And, and it does have a DVD release, which is really interesting, too, because so few TV movies get these kind of home video releases, you know. Mm -hmm. And here it is. It's sitting here and it's just waiting to be discovered. And so I hope people are listening. If they haven't checked it out yet, should go grab a copy and give it a go because it's really worthwhile. Yeah, if if you like the stuff from this period of of this this sort of this this kind of movie, like the action with some supernatural in it and stuff like this, I mean this 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 time period, this period in like the the end of the sixties to like well throughout most of the seventies, um, but but ba kind of the first half of the seventies really, they they just seem to do this kind of thing just perfectly in yeah. TV movies and just effortlessly just like like you know the Beatles putting out albums or something like that you know just effortlessly they could do good one after the other and I'd love to watch this with Escape and see how it goes give myself a Paul Plyden evening I think if that's how you say his name I think I say Plyden but that sounds okay. good the way you said it um I, he also did a movie that I really like called Beg Borrow or Steal oh I that which one is that that's the one with uh Mike Connors Kent McCord and Michael Cole, and they're each one of them is disabled in a different way. Oh yes, and they decide to uh, do a, a museum heist where they steal this jewel. Oh, and I want to see that now. And it's got really great. The heist scene is really suspenseful. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's such a good uh, film, and it's also got some social commentary in there about disabilities. Like it's really interesting. It's sort of different from uh, Paul Playden stuff that mm -hmm. I'm used to because I do think uh, Playden kind of. He's like, no, I don't need social commentary, guys. No, I was gonna say he's all for just throwing it in and just just going crazy. I mean, like if you've seen Escape, Escape is just nuts. Yeah, it's just seventy-two, seventy-three minutes of nuttiness that happens. You know. Yeah, he's really cool. I'm now thinking we need to do an Escape and Big Borrow Steel double. Oh, that would actually. Be, I, I'd like to do that because I, I always I always sit around thinking, uh, when are we going to do Escape? When are we going to yeah, do Escape? Yeah, we need to do that. We need, and we'll talk about that after this. But um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because because I get I'm, the more I dive into his work, the more I don't do enough. Um, 
I don't give enough attention to writers. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time on directors and stuff, and I should really be paying attention to people like Paul Platen because he's amazing and his and he pushes out quality work all the time. Yes. So, but yeah, so this is like I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Um, it was just so much fun to like revisit it too because now that I know what was kind of happening, I was just kind of watching it for Markham, you know, to see if any questions mm -hmm. would come up in the interview or whatever, and um, and I was just and I've been watching all of his TV movies at this point, and it's also like. He's he plays he embodies different characters really well. Mm -hmm. Like he's not just a one note actor. Like when you go from film to film, you can see all the differences that he brings to the characters, and he does such a good job because I think Mark could be a really remote character because he's this really good looking professor with this beautiful yeah. wife who's got this great job, and oh, he's psychic. You know what I mean? Yes. And and he's he's really sympathetic because it's like you said, he's like I've tried to tell people, and it always screws up. Eleven years ago. I was flying to California. There was a stopover between planes. I got to talking to two of the passengers I'd be flying on with. Man and his wife. We shook hands. It's like touching death. I figured it had to be the plane. I, I alerted the airport officials. They. They didn't know what to make of me. I, I begged, I, I pleaded. Finally, they rechecked the airplane. It seemed okay, nothing wrong, except I'd caused a two-hour delay. I refused to board it. I can see them now. All those people climbing the ramp, getting on. I watched the plane take off and disappear into the night. And I waited. I knew what was going to happen. Two hours later, the plane crashed. I suppose I should have felt lucky. And all I felt, still feel, is guilt. And he's a pretty empathetic character. And I think that that walks a fine line. I think he could easily not be. And I, I, I think I think the great the, the great scene when he goes to visit the the first cop, and and the the cop keeps getting interrupted to sign papers and the phone keeps ringing, yeah. and 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 the cop is never like I said the cop is never really like oh yeah you're psychic, okay hoo hoo all right yeah thank you sir have a nice day no he's actually <laughs> like oh, okay well we'll we'll do what we can but he's basically like you know if you only had a vision of it you don't have an address. Yeah. There's not much we can do, but we'll, you know, we'll sort of, we'll do our best. I, I, I think um, they, they, they sort of, they're, they're able to sort of do that thing with him where you, you really like um, the few scenes he's in. You really like Susan, yeah. His, 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 his wife is Gail there, and um, and there, and there's something about that moment when the lieutenant tells her, "Oh, you didn't know he was psychic," and you see the look on her face, and you think, "Oh, is this going to go badly?" But then it doesn't. And and she she's like okay she's accepting of it, 
and she's like she seems really sort of doesn't she I, she she's a fashion designer or something I, so, yeah, I think that's what she is yeah yeah and, and so she seems very she's not in it a lot but she seems very down to earth and you know a, you know a, a person and the fact that she she's with him when he's being you know his regular self and now that she knows he's psychic and she's still there i think kind of makes i think kind of helps you a little bit kind of like you know she's she's our regular sort of person in this and she's all for mark and i think we are too and the yeah. key in the end is for him too so i call him the key that's a tenant <laughs> i think it's interesting that uh you brought this up about the idea of them being semi-accepting of his psychic abilities because i didn't even think about this when um I was watching the movie, but it kind of speaks to the cultural landscape of the time. Yes. All that stuff was happening with the world and like the mediums were really popular and people were looking at the occult and like there was part of the counterculture movement and it kind of was something that stuck. And, um, and so, and it was everywhere and a lot of people were like really serious about it, you know? And so it is interesting that like in this film, it sort of expresses how it sort of seeped into like sort of mainstream america that they were just like oh yeah well maybe i mean it couldn't hurt to look you know yeah it's 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 i mean just the fact that the second set of visions he has you know lieutenant keegan is willing to send like everyone every cop he can to scour denver or wherever the heck they are exactly to find this image that he has in his head I, i think i think there's just something very charming about we we I think if the film were maybe like ninety minutes, you may have you may we may have had a bit of the um, uh, psychic <laughs> get out of here. But I think the fact that it's so streamlined and so moves so quickly, there's just no time for that. You know, it's like oh, he says he's psychic. Uh, well, can you help? Uh, you know, and we'll we'll take any help we can get, sort of thing. And isn't there like one one of the guys says to Telly Savalas right at the beginning? Hey, other other departments use psychics. You know, just because we haven't doesn't mean that other departments haven't used them and used them successfully. That's right. And, I, and um, and and Telly, the moment like the moment they find that second bomb, Telly's all for it. You know, he's like, "You're my psychic friend. Let's let's go." <laughs> my out. psychic friend was the other title. You know, yeah, my psychic friend. Let's go out. Let's hit the bars. You could tell me which one of the ladies is up for Telly. That's right. I think yeah. a lot of them probably would have. Probably. probably. This... Although I will say the fact that the professor has a big book on explosives on his desk, you know, is maybe a red herring too far. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh, he's just curious. He's a curious, he's he curious, a curious yeah. mind. He's a curious mind. Yeah. So like like you said, or like I said, the word I used was refreshing. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's it's kind of in a weird way, despite the subject matter, it's kind of an upbeat film because it does have all these great characters that like get along and and there's rapport and there's like positive notes in most of the relationships, you know, and, and that's kind of nice and it sort of offsets you know what's happening and also it's like a pretty empathetic script because i think joseph sarola who plays the bomber in this is given like a pretty sad backstory and and it makes you kind of care about him even though clearly he's doing something awful but they take the time to kind of like create him again like you said about barbara anderson's character he becomes a person yes you know which also makes it different from mind over murder because um andrew prine who plays the mad bomber in that there's he's just a bad person yeah he's creepy yeah. you don't mm-hmm. want to be near him and he's a jerk you know and yeah. like here that you really you're like oh and it's interesting because there's actually a trapper john that i'm going to be covering soon that has a similar story about a bomber and the backstory is also very similar so it's kind of interesting when they take the time to do that and i yeah. i actually 
it's such a difficult and maybe convoluted and heady topic for 2023 when it feels like people are like i don't know how to word this like retroactivism like like people get offended by weird things and yes and i feel like they want things painted in black and white Mm-hmm. And and not the world is a black and white and and this TV movie is a really interesting example of how to paint a gray, yeah, in a character and it's okay, mm-hmm. you know you can think he's a bad person for doing what he does but you could also feel bad about why he got to this point yes to do yes. this you know and yes. and it's literally like a thirty second backstory but it, it stuck with me you know it's all you it's all you need yeah I mean yeah it's not yeah he's not a nut just well I mean. Maybe a little. He's a little uh, nutty. Touch but, a little, a little, but 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 he 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 was kind of broken. Yes, that that's what that's what sent him there. You know, it it reminded me of um, a, a bit, although they're very different movies. Is the Police Connection, the Bird Eye Gordon film, oh, the Mad Bomber, seen that. with with um. Oh, I have that. I thought that was a TV movie. That's why no, I bought it. Is that the yeah, one with I, Vince Edwards? Yes, and, yeah. and Chuck Connors, mm-hmm. and oh, the guy from Eaten Alive. Oh, Neville Brand. Yes, yes, yeah. and and yeah, and the premise of that is, is yeah, it's a you know there's a there's a tough cop, and there's a bomber who is is more nuanced than just a crazy mad bomber, and there is someone who can help the cop get to the bomber, but unlike he's not a psychic, I won't say what he is, but he's not very nice. But Aww. it's 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 one of those things where if you only know Bird Eye Gordon from movies with giant men or spiders or tiny people. You'll you'll watch this and the, the there there is a TV version, but the actual original version that's on uh, Code Red put out is R rated and is a little rough. Yeah, I just have the VHS. I mm-hmm. bought it because it had Vince Edwards and Chuck Connors. It sounded like a TV movie. You know, I looked at the cast. Yes, and, but I've never actually sat down and watched it. Yeah, it's I, it's it's quite good. I I've never seen the the PG or the or the cut version, but it's it's actually quite good and it's 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 um. It's it's nicely done. Everyone's pretty good, and you watch it and go, "This is Bird Eye Gord." Wow, <laughs> colossal man, the puppet people. Wow, yeah, a man of but many it's, talents. It's it's sort of yeah, it's sort of um, a similar dynamic, kind of, with with a semi sympathetic mad bomber, a tough cop, and someone sort of in the middle oh, who can help, kind of. Yeah, I guess that's probably a well worn premise and i'm just not that familiar with it because i don't watch that many movies about mad bombers <laughs> but neither do i but i could see that kind of being like a blueprint for mm-hmm. you know having the guy in the middle and the and the bomber and then the police guy or whatever but um mm-hmm. but this movie kind of perfects it for me so like um it's just it's just a really likable film it's always hard when, when i get movies that i love so much i'm like what can i say about this because yeah. it's it's so good that it kind of speaks for itself yeah I, I was gonna say i do have one one I don't. It's not a criticism. It could just be me not understanding oh, yeah, something. Yeah. Tell me. So, so, so there's the. He sees the. So, so the first time he, he, um, the the first time he he has the psychic visions. Yeah, he just sees like the the um the plastic explosives and the dynamite, and he sees like pipes and and oh, things like that. It's I, do little, I know what you're gonna say? It's a little vague. I don't think maybe. I it, it, and if if write down what you think I'm gonna say, so you don't forget it if I don't say it. Okay, I know. I got it in my head. Okay, um, and, and, but then the second time he very specifically sees I don't know what are they freeway overpasses, you know, like like you know, like the big like huge 
above the ground, bridges crossing over one another, linking freeways to each other kind of thing that are all over the place in L.A. and also in Denver, apparently, or at least one of them. And he specifically sees those and draws an image of, like, crossing ramps and things like that. But when he shows Lieutenant Keegan the picture, he says, all I have, you know, basically all I have is this. And I thought, no, you don't. You saw a freeway. And then they spend like five minutes before the we- like the weather guy in the helicopter, you know, he's like, yeah. uh, like looking at the looking at the freeway backup or something like that. He goes, oh, my gosh, it's the freeway. And they, they find the bomb. And that slightly confused me because then I thought, so what is he seeing in the psychic things? Like in the first one, he doesn't really see anything that specific. In the mm-hmm. second one, he does. But for some reason, it doesn't make it like he doesn't say I saw a freeway. I saw an overpass. You know, I saw several um, uh, bits of free. I don't know what the hell it's called. Interchange and overpass. You know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I saw that. And there can't, I don't know if there are a ton of those in Denver. But I think if he, uh, my, my thought was he'd tell them that. And then they'd send people out to the Denver freeways and look at all those bits. But instead, he sends them out looking for this image of things like crossing one another. So they go to train stations, they go to intersections, they go everywhere. And I and that was the only part of the movie where I was like, what's going on here? Did, did he or did he not see what we saw that he saw? Yeah, I think, I guess we're supposed to assume that he saw something slightly different now that you say it that okay. way. But they didn't, they certainly weren't explicit enough about it to mm. you know, I thought you were going to talk about, we were talking about the visions and I thought you were going to make a comment about when he gets to the safe house. Oh, yeah. And he a... sees the guy's face, like, break into, like, that's a thousand so pieces. Good. It's so cool, isn't it? And he's like, it's oh, my God. And he, then he throws himself out the window. Like, <laughs> like, in second, like the way he throws himself out the window is such a weird edit. Like, we, yes. oh, he projects himself somehow into the air, into, like, a ball. And, like, rolls without even jumping, it feels like. And, like yeah, he's in, like, a Hong Kong action film or something. <laughs> like, he's crouching tiger, hidden Markham. And he yeah. just leaps through the window. It's yeah. amazing. It's, like, my favorite scene. I had to watch it a couple times because I just love the way it looks. That That is a great, I mean, that is, that is a really well done scene where it's, like, he's just, like, the... The bomber's out. He's outside that. He's under the house. He's putting dynamite under the house. And it's just like, and the cops are standing there. And it's like, you, you can see they're they're slowly getting what's going on. But it's all coming a bit too fast and crazy. And, um, and yeah, when, when those guys burst into pieces, that was great. Yeah, but then it's like, why well, you have to kill the Hispanic? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just let that one go. But... So he's got to be the Hispanic, and yeah. so <laughs> he's like, I can't remember he had a name like Sanchez or something. And I believe so. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. It's like Sanchez is gone, Fernandez, guys. Yeah, yeah. And it was really sad, but um, but yeah, I, that's I think that's my favorite scene in the movie. Just visually, that's it's like really, really cool. Yeah, because you don't you don't expect that at all, and the moment it happens, you're like, what the? <laughs> it's yeah. just like one of those crazy moments where it's like, what? And then when it happens the second time, you're like, oh, I want more of that. I want that's it all really- the time. That's all I want. That's really cool. They, if, if it had been a series like The Psychic and the Cop, it would have been overdone. Well, interestingly did enough, did you know this was a pilot TV movie? I was unsure whether or not it was. I mean, most of them, a lot, not most of them, but quite a few of them I know at this time were. And yeah, I, I mean, we can go a little bit into the background of it. Um, oh. uh, but it was intended to be a pilot. And at the time, so this is 1972, so this is pre the new Perry Mason but after the second hundred years, and I think after Mr. Deeds, and I know Markham, 
he has a, and he talks about in the interview he had a lot of mixed feelings about doing a TV series and I think mm-hmm. it wasn't that mixed I think he was really not that into it it's a grind you know what I mean yeah yeah but he really liked the script for the film and I think he was um, at the time he was curtailing his work on television at that point but he thought I think he saw the potential for the series mm-hmm. and, and one of the things he said was he felt that most and this is not I don't think this is in the interview I did, but in an interview I found in, uh, from 1972, he said he felt that most uh, TV was all the same at the time, and um, and I think he just saw something in it. And he did a lot of promotion for the film, um, and which is great because it's semi-documented now. Not just because he talked about it in my interview, but like he actually went out and did interviews, and like, uh-huh. and you don't see that a lot for TV movies. And so, but at the time that he was doing it, he had just been cast to star opposite Debbie Reynolds in a Broadway musical titled Irene, with John oh, wow. Gielgud directing. Oh, and wow. he okay. left the production to do the new Perry Mason. So he was definitely open in. To uh-huh. TV, but he just—I think he was waiting for the right projects. But um, yeah, I was surprised that this was a pilot, and I kind of wish it had done better. I will tell you when we go into the background proper and I talk about like uh-huh. what it ran against and everything, I could not find the ratings for this, so I don't know oh, how yeah. it did. Um, but uh, but everybody seemed to really like it, and I I think there's a lot of really good potential to mm-hmm. make it into a series. I, I will say, though, this one, unlike, say, Escape, where when Escape ends, I thought, I'd like to see where that Christopher George character goes next. At the end of this one, I was kind of satisfied. You know, mm. they had made friends. He he, he had, um, you know, he his psychic ability was finally, you know, people understood it. And he, he was able to help somebody, and he's with a lovely lady, and they're having a nice time. And I, I, I wasn't... Um, it wasn't like... The, occasionally when I get one that I know was going to be a pilot, and I watch I get to the end and go... I'd like to see that. This one, I was kind of okay with where it yeah, ended. Yeah, I can see that. And now I kind of want to take back the part about the antagonism that's missing because maybe that would have worked if they made it into a TV series because they could have built on their friendship True, over yeah. the series. And that might have been more interesting than just having them start off as like... Super pals. Yeah. Hey, and my psychic buddy, what you got? Let's go to the bar. Let's do it. Let's hang out, check, you know? Check it out. Check it yeah. out. I got this my bank is going to get robbed today. We'll be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, so like, yeah, I, I kind of think that maybe they, if they were going to make it into a TV series, there are things they could have played around with in the in this movie to make it like to extend things. Because I just feel like I, maybe he would just work with different departments. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I, I would hope they wouldn't do that thing where they backed up on what happened in this. Yeah, and like it would start off where suddenly uh, a Lieutenant Keegan is like sort of being a little gruff about it again okay that bomber thing was just that was a fluke so we're just going to see what you can do with this you know, kind of thing i would hope they wouldn't do that but that that has happened in shows before so it, it has yeah but yeah i don't know it would have been fun i know i i would like to just see money markham every week is what it comes sure to. sure with Who telly savalas they're, they're really great together I just, especially in the scene where they where they diffuse the bomb under the the freeway and they're sitting like in the van sort of together and they're they're really like it's some really good stuff really good stuff yeah i kind of also feel like if it had become a series we might not have gotten kojak the next year oh true yeah that would have been a damn shame and the marcus nelson murders is like this phenomenal tv movie and so i guess it all worked out in the end Mm -hmm. the way it was supposed to but, um, yeah, I like the idea of seeing this every week, um, especially if they use the same kind of players, you know, like they yeah. they really base it off Playden's original script and, like, built from there. It could have been 
pretty good. Because one of the cool things about it is like all the all the sort of supporting cops are not there. There aren't like any jerks or anything no. in there. They're all kind of just they're they're decent characters. They're 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 good characters. You know, like what there isn't one where you're like, oh, this guy. You know, it's like all of them are kind of like I don't want to say cool, but they're kind of like they all work. You know, it it isn't like there there aren't. There, there isn't a, a, a bit in it where you're like looking at one of the cops going, oh, I don't want to see this guy or, oh, this guy's bad. You know, whatever. Everyone is kind of in it to win it. I don't know why I said that. You know you know what I mean. But everyone's like, everyone works. Rapport is so important to me. So yes. like, and I'm going to jump ahead a couple years, but like Charlie's Angels, the reason why that show is so good is not the stories per se, although they have a lot of fun stories, you know, but it's that they get along. You know, and I like watching people who get along. Like, it's fine to have antagonism, you know, yes. in, in certain things. But, like, it, I don't want to watch that all the I think, time. I, I I think with something like this where you have a mad bomber and you know he's capable of, of killing lots of people, you want the antagonism to be, you know, like, between people who respect one another and are working together and who maybe aren't, you know, like, maybe went on a dead end and now they're a bit pissed at each other or or some stuff isn't happening fast enough so they get a little angry at each other but you don't want it to be like people who seem to hate each other yeah absolutely spending all their time together you want i mean that's like like the scene in, in the end when they go into that big factory or whatever the heck it is to try to catch the bomber and you see like there's a moment where like telly is there and he's like saying you go here and you go there and like the two or three people behind him are like cops who have been in the whole movie and you're like hey this is a fun gang you know, this is like the police academy <laughs> gang, but it's not a fun as well. This this is a fun bunch of bunch of people, and and it was it was sort of nice to see them all there. And which we which was you know that sounds silly to say, but it's like they they really do. I, I'm if I were to watch this again and just focus on the secondary characters, they seem like I, I, it's not like it's like a, a rich tapestry, but it's like a good group of yeah. actors with decent parts making the most of it in a in a in a sort of in an excellent space the space of the movie yeah oh no i absolutely agree i think it's i think there's room for like uh, you know bumping heads with cops mm-hmm. or whatever there's there, there are plenty of shows that do that but like it's also just really nice to see people realize that there's a common bad guy yes and they're gonna get together and they're gonna try to find him you know and i, I don't know i like that that's more comforting to me and and yeah, there there isn't like the some guy on top coming in and going like, "What are you all doing?" or something like that, you know. And and you know, Telly is he goes after uh, Mark a little rough, or Lieutenant Keegan goes after Mark a little rough in the beginning. But but the moment he realizes that, okay, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about, boom, uh, he's on board. And I I, I like. Well, that I wouldn't some... use the word boom when you're talking about. Boom, yeah, I guess boom is the wrong. <laughs> the, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's 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 one of those movies that. Um, this is this is sort of one of those movies that why do why do I love TV movies from this era so much because of movies like this you yeah. watch it and it's just it's just for 73 74 minutes you're there and it's just so entertaining and so nicely done and just it doesn't go and you can go back and watch it again yeah and, and, it, it knows exactly what it is mm-hmm. and it's not trying to add anything extra or take anything away from mm-hmm. what it knows it is and and it just it finds that balance you know that a lot of movies struggle to find, and um, and I agree that the running time really helps because yes. I'm guessing, and we'll deep dive into Paul Platen, I think here hopefully soon. Uh, I feel like he understands the blueprint pretty well, 
Mm-hmm. And he's yeah. just like working with that and he's doing different elements. And I like that. And I'll be interested to go back and look at Escape and see what I think of the relationships in that uh-huh. film. And I remember really liking the relationships in Big Borrower Steel. So yeah. it should be fun. Yeah, yeah. So I, I Visions of Death, thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. And so let's just go through. I, I think uh, we're going to have a little bit to talk about when I go into the background here because... What I'll tell you is it ran on October 10th, 1972, so it was sort of there for the Halloween season. It aired on CBS. Um, I'll tell you what it ran against here, and we're going to talk about one of these, I think, um, because we covered it here on the show. Uh, So on NBC, it ran against an episode of The Bull Ones and a TV show called Charlie Mack, which I'm not familiar with. On ABC, it ran against Marcus Welby, but it also ran against an ABC movie of the week titled Night of Terror, which is that great TV movie we watched with Martin Balsam and um, Donna Mills, Mm -hmm. where she plays the woman who um, sees uh, Chuck Connors kill somebody. Mm Mm-hmm. And she goes into hiding with this private detective played by Martin Balsam. But she's in a wheelchair because he created this car chase yeah. accident yeah. that killed her friend and paralyzed her. And um, and that movie's fantastic. It is. How could you pick? That's crazy. I, I don't even know. Talk about really likable characters. I remember mm-hmm. when we covered that film. And we originally saw it because we did Night Terror, the commentary yes. for that. And this was called Night of Terror. So we were mm-hmm. like, let's watch it. You know, let's see what, what, how different it is. And we were really charmed by yes. the kind of father-daughter relationship that developed between yeah. Balsam and Mills. And then the end is really good, too. The yeah. end with, yeah. Everything uh, yeah. about that movie is very good. Yeah, sharp, yeah. yeah. And so, like, I guess we're looking at 1972. Maybe one day wow. we'll just cover movies from 1972 because I feel like there's they've really figured out the formula here. Mm-hmm. And they're going for it. And they're doing a really good job, like, yeah. pumping out really quality material, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that runs, like you said, 75 minutes and, mm-hmm. and goes from point A to point B. Let's forget about all this subplotting craziness. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. And let's just make a movie with really good actors and who are genuine in their performances. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they did it. And so, like, yeah, I feel like if I was old enough in 1972 to pick one of these two movies, I'd be really oh, impressed. Yeah. I can't. I can't. Don't make me do it. No, you. No. Oh wow, that's that's great. Yeah, you see that sometimes. Like when I when I'm flipping through, um, uh, you know, my my, my TV movie collection of books. Which of course includes yours, yeah. uh, you know, and I look at schedules and things, and I'm like, wow, how, wow, so many of these just were like at the same time. What did people do? What did people do? Yeah, it's wild because because we didn't have streaming, so it wasn't like you just watched whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted yeah. to watch it, and we didn't have really home video devices at this point either. So it was kind of like I've got to commit myself mm-hmm. to one of these and watch it, and so like, and if and I if I watch this, it's likely I'm not going to see the other thing ever again. Possibly ever, yeah. Yeah, um, it's uh, the pressure that we lived under in the 1970s ouch. was intense. I wonder why we smoked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in the 80s, we started doing cocaine. We so, had to, yeah, but the VCR helped. That helped us with our VCR cocaine. Did help yeah, they went the after 80s. Noriega, but they really just needed to. <laughs> yes. To do this, um, so this was, of course, as I mentioned, Telly Savalas pre Kojak. Uh, but his 1972, let me tell you what he appeared in in 1972. The movie Pancho Villa, the movie A Reason to Live, A Reason to Die, this TV movie, another uh, theatrical called A Killer is on the Phone, which sounds amazing. Um, he played a character named Ranko. Um, of course, he was in the classic Horror Express. Um, another movie called Sonny and Jed, and then something where he played Don Vincenzo in Crime Boss. So I wonder if he's Vincenzo's relative on Night Stalker. Mm. Oh, 
yeah. Could you imagine? I would love that. Yeah. That would be great. And the year before this, he did a TV movie called Mongo's Back in Town, which I've been dying to watch, and I've had it for years, and I just need to sit down and watch it. But um, So Barbara Anderson, who plays the girlfriend in this, I want to talk a little bit about her, because she had left Ironside. Speaking of uh, Raymond Burr, um, mm-hmm. she, she left Ironside on her own accord because she didn't want to be playing the same character every week. She wanted to kind of expand as an actress, and she took a year off. She got married. She decided to spend a year being a newlywed and kind of enjoy that life um, and then go back into the world of film and see what was there for her. So this year she did Visions um, in 1972. She also appeared in an episode of Night Gallery titled Fright Night alongside Stuart Whitman, who you know uh, is like the most beautiful man who ever walked this planet. Um, (laughs) And she did a few episodes of Mission Impossible. And then the year after this she would do Don't Be Afraid of the Dark where she plays Kim Darby's best friend. So what I like so much about this is, and I covered this when I did the, I did that Night Gallery episode for um, Kino Lorber when they released the season three uh, mm-hmm. on Blu-ray. And I really, really enjoyed uh, researching Barbara Anderson because she talked a lot about how much fun she did had doing horror and thrillers. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things she said about uh, doing Fright Night was she really enjoyed it because she got to scream a lot. And that was something she never <laughs> really got to do before. And she really openly embraced the genre at the time. And, you know, we would see through the years that a lot of actors and actresses don't do that. They want to, yeah. like, not be... They'll do the films, but they, they don't want to be, like, known for those films, you know? And so she's kind of, like, in that Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis camp where I think she embraced it. And she decided, I'm going to roll with it and have fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And so and so um, she had this kind of year where she did a lot of genre work and really seemed to embrace it. And she's so stunning. Um, yeah. And I love her. I just love her. Um, and she did a lot of other things, too. But this, uh, this era of Barbara Anderson is probably my favorite of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Joseph Sirola interestingly enough, has a really interesting tie to the next film. But what I'll tell you about him now is that uh, he ended up making a killing in voiceover work. Uh, He actually would make about $500,000 a year. Oh, wow. I didn't know that um, until I started researching him. Um, So, uh, uh, and we'll talk about his connection to Hotline when we get to the trivia there. But, um, and I know him best, I guess. He did a movie around the time he did this, maybe the year after maybe 74 I can't remember called Cry Rape and that's a really problematic film I don't like to use that word because I think it's overused but it Mm -hmm. it suits it here he plays a cop in this movie called Cry Rape with Andrea Marcovici who was in um, Smile Jenny You're Dead oh yeah um, yeah. and I love her and um, I can't remember the name of the guy who stars in it and I'm sorry that I can't because he's great but it's about a woman who gets raped Andrea Marcovici and she along with several other women have been raped and they they identify the guy who it turns out has a like a doppelganger like a guy who looks so much like him that they've misidentified the rapist and that's where my problem with the film is is that saying women misidentify their attacker is it, a like seven women misidentify him i think is really bad form for a movie that's supposed to be a female-centric story about rape and also they take the story away from the woman and it becomes about the guy who's been falsely accused and joseph sorola's character as the cop and um and they're great in it but no, I, I have a lot of problems with that film. Um, and Is also it Peter just, Peter Cofield. Yes, yes, he he's a, he's a really interesting actor. Um, I think he played in The Father in Times Square, Trini Alvarado's dad in that, and um, and he's a very good actor. But uh, but the movie itself, it kind of 
sits poorly with me, but it was a huge hit. Um, and it did open the dialogue to a degree about rape, and it actually predates a case of rape with Elizabeth Montgomery, which really opened the doors for us to start having these discussions about sexual assault. So so Cry Rape is an important film, but it, it just really bothers me. But Joseph Sorrell is great in it. He also did several episodes of Quincy, I think. Um, I remember seeing him pop up on that. And he was a really great actor. I really liked yeah. him. And, oh, go ahead. I meant to look him up because he's in something that I love, and I couldn't. And I was like, oh, that guy! Uh, I forgot to look up what he was in. He's basically in everything. So yeah. it, whatever you liked, it was probably he probably is like ten things you like and you just Yes. Are only thinking of one of them. But um and I meant to copy all the reviews, but I only got one. Um the LA Times called it a chilling suspense and they thought the cast was excellent. And across the board, uh people who reviewed the movie uh for newspapers in nineteen seventy two loved it. Um and I would agree with them. And they thought it had a real cinematic quality to it. There was a lot of things yes, about yeah. it that they liked. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I realized that I do like about it is it does it has the the double climax thing, which I always like where it has the scene in the cabin. Yeah. Which is very exciting. It feels very climactic. But then it has the other scene in like the factory where they catch the bomber, which I think is is also very climactic. Also, yeah. I, I I was like when a film can sort of in the um can 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 sort of do the the the, the I guess multi, I don't want to double climax kind of, I guess, is what I would say. Um, kind of. But um, it's, yeah. it's really nicely done. I think Platon's just really good at building action set pieces, and mm-hmm. yet at the same time he gives you enough character background to make them people. Escape kind of has that too, because Escape has the sequence where they're escaping from um, John Vernon's underground lair under the amusement park, and they have to like go up like a elevator shaft, and there's stunting and heights, and then it has the final chase in the. Uh, actual amusement park that ends with like a chase around a roller coaster. So that kind of has that too. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So we love Paul Playton and we love this film and, and definitely see it if you haven't. And, um, and Markham will talk a little bit about this in the interview. So you've gotten some background. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to move on to our next movie, which I'm really excited to talk about. And I'm really sad Nate's not here because I know he really likes this one. Uh, this is Hotline. A crisis worker is being bugged by a crank caller whose clues lead to murder and a surprise visit. What do you want? Don't you know, my precious? I want you. Now the killer's got her number. He's going to try and kill me, Justin. Yes, uh, this one is about a woman named, um, well, she spe- it's spelled Brianne, but they call her Brian throughout. Um, uh, and she is a, um, she's a, she's, she wants to be an artist. She's working as a bartender um, at a, a bar owned by, um, uh, I, is it Kyle Dunham, it's I Kyle, believe? Yeah. Monty Markham's character? Kyle, yes, by Kyle. And uh, Kyle's best friend is um, a famous like movie star, um, sort of action filmy kind of guy named I believe Tom Hunter. Yep, is his name, and Tom's got a thing for uh, Brian, and um, uh, uh, Brian meets a gentleman, a Doctor Price, who runs a hotline uh, for you know like a call it up, I need help hotline, and he brings he watches Brian's skills as a bartender fending off jerks and keeping people calm, and says I'd like you to be uh, part of my hotline. What are you doing in your spare time? 
Why? Yeah, I could use someone like you. Doing what? Taking phone calls. What do you mean? Well, you see, I'm a psychiatrist. I run a crisis center called Westside Hotline. It's where people with emotional problems can call for help. Seeing the way you handle that drunk tonight, you're exactly the kind of person I look for. So she begins to, she's part of the hotline, basically sitting in like the living room of a house with a bunch of people answering phones. Wait, wait, wait. Before you go on, you yeah. didn't mention who plays Dr. Price. Oh, uh, it's Van Dusen. The great and wonderful Granville Van Dusen. Yeah. He has returned to the Made for TV yeah, Mayhem show. Yeah, it's been a long time. It has, and we love this man. We love this man, and mm-hmm. he's great in this film, so yes. I'm really excited. And then stuff happens at the hotline. No, um, she, gets, she gets a call <laughs> one day from a guy who's, Hello, Brian. How are you? Could you repeat that, sir? Oh, I'm not sure I understood you. They were evil. Sweet smelling and evil like poisonous organs. They have to be punished. They do bad things to us, so I do bad things back to them. What bad things did you do? You hurt them? Yes. All of them. And I enjoy it. Do you think that's wrong? Who did you hurt? I want you to tell me. Oh, no. (laughs) You can't catch me like that. You'll find out soon enough. Oh, I'll... At first, it just seems to be kind of a creepy creep calling up the hotline but then it becomes more elaborate and it becomes sort of we're playing a game and and the creepy person who um i i believe eventually becomes like the barber i think is is the name sort Mm. of it becomes it may or may not be a serial killer who is giving her hints on previous killings he or she has engaged in and possibly one that just recently happened and that all seemed to be converging possibly on Brian in some way or another. And so it's her trying to figure out these clues that this strange voice person is giving her over the phone. And, um, and she's pretty good at it. She's, she's pretty good at it. And also trying to try to figure out who this person might be and also worrying that she may be sort of next on the list. And it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a thriller. It's, it's building and it's, it's, it's finding out about this, these killings and try to figure out, is it someone she knows? Is it just a random person? What's going on? And it's kind of a nice and suspenseful. And I'll just leave it there because we'll, we may spoil it or we may not, but yeah, it's Linda Carter's in trouble and her name is Brian. Uh, we did spoil this in the interview because I had oh, okay. some questions for Monty Markham um, oh, about course, yeah. his We're character. Have to, yeah, I guess yeah. we talk about <laughs> We have to talk about the end because yes. it's wild. This movie is so good. This movie, I don't remember the first time I've seen it. Had you seen this before? I had not because I first heard about it when we started doing this so many years ago. And I think you said, oh, we're going to cover that one. So I said, okay. <laughs> that was a half a decade ago, folks. It was a long time ago. I'm sorry about that. Oh, but, no, that's a but um, I don't remember when I first came across this movie, but I think it was like not when it originally aired. And I don't remember. It did have a home video release. It has a really great VHS um, cover. But and I don't remember ever seeing that anywhere before the Internet. Um, but like so I don't think I rented it ever. Uh, I think it just played on cable one day, like on Encore when they used to play TV movies in the afternoon and stuff. And I caught it maybe in the early 2000s or late 90s. And I was like, where has this movie been my whole life? <laughs> 
This movie has so many wonderful elements to it. Aside from the fact that Linda Carter's a goddess. Mm -hmm. And she's playing a woman with like 19 jobs. Isn't she like an art student, (laughs) bartender, hotline helper? And she's spreading herself everywhere. And she does it with all this grace and dignity because she's Linda Carter. Mm -hmm. And she's also a badass in it. You know, like, like, I mean, I wouldn't mess around with her anyway because she's like 5'10 or something. Mm -hmm. And she looks like she can handle herself in a bar fight. But Mm -hmm. like... She's very confident in the film, and and I think she... So we talked about this when we did that movie, No Place to Hide, Mm -hmm. about this kind of transformation into the final girl that Kathleen Beller's character has, and they kind of marketed it as like that in the advertising because they were playing off what was popular in Mm -hmm. the horror films at the time. And so this movie's not a slasher, but I do think that they're taking elements from slasher films and incorporating them into this TV movie. And so Brian's character is like this amalgamation of all these different final girls after almost the final girl moment where mm-hmm. they've built on that strength and like, and she's kind of an interesting subversion of it as well because her name. So one of the things that Carol Clover talked about in men, women and chainsaws is that a lot of the characters have asexual names. And of course I can't think of any now, but there are like a lot of the women who play final, who are final girls. The yeah. slashers have names that like Stacy or something, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so Brian is clearly a masculine name, but it's like, uh, but she's very feminine in it. And in, in a lot of the slasher movies, Carol Clover talks about how these women are sort of more masculine. Mm-hmm. They're less feminine. But, but Linda Carter's all woman here. Let's oh, not, yeah, yeah. Let's not fight that. <laughs> um, and so and so she's this amazing character that you just cling to through the whole film. And it's like what you said. She's really good at what she does. She's really bright and smart. And she's compassionate. And, um, and she's like this almost she's a wonder woman literally yes, exactly. you know what i mean yeah. but like without the supernatural powers so like she's she just embodies this really kind of cool character that i love and and i think the mystery is actually really good too yeah. and the, i remember there being a cat and mouse chase like through like a parking garage or something mm-hmm. that's like really good um and so it's got all these really wonderful suspense moments and um and it also has granville van dusen yes and it has Steve Forrest, who always plays, not always, but like he did this and he did Hollywood Wives. And he always play, plays in those movies like these really dumbfounded, hunky guys <laughs> that I love. Yeah, yeah. Like the airhead hunk is like he's perfected it. And um, and I just love him. Plus he was on Dallas too. Mm, mm. Remember he was maybe Jacques? I said oh, Jacques, yes. but I mean Jacques. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jacques. that's right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. He was uh, Parmalee, right? Wasn't that the character's yeah, name? Yeah, Parmalee. Yeah, shows up. Yep. Yeah. Yep, after yeah, after uh, Jim Davis, the helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Gosh, him. I love Steve Forrest. I have a mad uh, crush on him. So I love this movie, and I'm dying to hear what you think of it. And even if you don't love it, I'm not going to fire you. Oh, <laughs> no, but I, be I, careful. I, I thought it was fantastic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, for, I mean, you got to love it right off the bat. So right off the bat, she's in a little convertible, like um, Professor was in in the previous movie. So there's that link. There, they both drive a little convertible around. Wow, uh, the connections we're making. Um, but the thing I loved <laughs> about it, first off, is that when the movie begins and you see the killer throwing a body off a cliff. Mm, yeah. Um, the the and, and and even and the opening credits, the synthesizers are so thick. Yeah. That I actually thought, has this movie been rescored for like video or something? Because it was the the synths were so. But I, as far as I know, it hasn't. It's just filled with a lot of great... It's a great synth score. (laughs) 
and she's fantastic in it. And there's there's a great thing where she has this beautiful house sort of in the middle of nowhere. It reminded yeah. me sort of the house that the woman has. It is it Deadly Intruder, I think. Um, oh, God, it's been forever since. You mean Molly Cheek's house in that Yes, movie? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of in the middle of nowhere, except I like Linda Carter's house more. But it kind of reminded me that she's this woman living in the middle of nowhere. So she's she's very independent and she, she's she got this beautiful That's space. Right. Although they do make, they do make a point of um, – uh, when when Mr. Uh, Van Dusen there, um, Dr. Price, Justin says, um, oh, it's a great house. Oh, I'm just house sitting. And the great thing is that covers, you know, you're thinking, how did she afford the house if she's an art student? She's a bartender, this huge house. And, but, and the great thing is it never comes up again. So it's like, I'm just house sitting. You're like, okay. And then that just justifies her having this gorgeous house. Right. And it never, you know, they're never, and you, you, you do think maybe briefly for a moment, is the killer someone involved in the house? Is it the owner of the house maybe or something? I don't know. Will she find bodies under the floorboards? Ooh. Maybe not. But uh, but that that's something you can think about. But she, she obviously she's great in it. And she she's, um and I love, I love how she, um when the barber guy, uh, you know, um, is saying these things to her over the phone. The first thing she does is she goes out and she buys like a microphone thing that you can hook to up to oh, the phone. I love this scene. Where, and, and that guy is great. <laughs> you stick this end on the receiver. Mm-hmm. The other end, we plug into our tape recorder where it says microphone. Okay. Make sure you've got a cassette in there ready to go. Now, I'll dial a number. And when somebody comes on the line, I'll press the record button. Okay? So far. Let's go. Hello, darling. Listen, I'm going to be a little late tonight. I've got to hook up a stereo system for a customer. I love you, too. Goodbye, darling. What it is, this is a beautiful piece of equipment. I'll take it. The, the, the guy behind the counter is is the best behind the counter guy since um, is it? I forget the name of the character in Don't Go in the House went to buy disco clothes. He is fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. He's, he's fantastic, and um, and and she and, and she's she's so great. And she gets this so she can record the calls because she's getting these obtuse, strange clues. And she wants to record them. And she's able to record them and listen to them over and over again. And she becomes very, very detective-y. And she's figuring out all these little things and these great little little weird rhymes and stuff. And, and she, she's great. And, she's, and, and then things just get weirder as she, as she goes. And you start to – and there is a point where you start to think like every single person in the movie might be the killer. Uh, and including maybe someone we haven't met yet. And it's really nicely done. And they don't – my worry was it being a 90 – a two-hour time slot film that it might have a bit of filler in it, and I don't think it does really. There, there are some scenes where she, her and um, Doctor uh, Price sort of just hang around, 
you know, get romantic with each other in a hot tub. And then they're, I think they're in bed briefly, or maybe I'm just, that was in my mind that happened. I forget, <laughs> but, but, but there are a couple more, but you kind of expect that. And, um, and if it was like a 75 minute one, that probably wouldn't have been there. They would have, that, that wouldn't have happened. But I love, I love the romance element of this movie because I really like, uh, Justin with, with yes. Brian and Brian's an interesting character because she's a widow mm. And so, and what you mentioned about her saying, so I missed the part about the house sitting like that. I didn't catch that this last time or maybe no time because I don't have a memory of it. But <laughs> I, but you're talking about what we were talking about earlier, this idea that like when they gave Joseph Sorolla just enough backstory yes. to make him, you know, sympathetic. Now they're giving Brian a reason to be in the house just with this one little sentence and then mm-hmm. it's done and we've taken That's care of it. Need. Now we can, yeah, we can go back to, we can concentrate on the mystery, which they do a really good job of, because you're right, because I feel like it could be just about anybody in the movie. And, and who who acts the most suspicious? Uh, that would be uh, Mr. Van Dusen. On yep. two occasions, like being around her house in the middle of the night. <laughs> He's a little, he, he kind of creeps out at the beginning, but yes, it's Granville Van Dusen. Yeah, you, you, you kind of thinking it's probably not him, but then, and, and then there's that weird thing with the, um, is he married? Does he? Is he married with? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. and he keeps saying he's not. But then, yeah. like the 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 other guy, I forget the the, the other guy's name, who she's at that the, works at the hotline, at the phone. Yeah. You know, he makes a joke about it, and it's like, huh? Does he does he really? And she's like, do you have a wife and kids? Now, what's making you say that? No, no, tell me. Do you have? No. I was like, okay, and there's these little little moments there that it's all it's it's a little literally until the end. I didn't know who it was going to be. Which is good. What did you think of the ending? I thought it's just nutty enough yeah. <laughs> that I was like, "Oh, I, I don't think I expected that." And and <laughs> and then and then when it happens, you're like, "Okay, yeah, that's a, that that works out nice." And it's a, it's a it's a good it's a good ending. I think it's a, it's a good ending. So it's I wild, I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but I think yeah. So like you know, Linda Carter. I don't know what to say about her that hasn't already been said. I mean, she's America's sweetheart. Mm-hmm. First of all, like I don't know anybody who doesn't love Linda Carter, and if they do, then they must be like yes. awful people. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I, I can't imagine anybody disliking her because she's she's. She, it's almost like she embodies the characters that she plays. Mm-hmm. Like there, she has qualities of Wonder Woman in her. She has qualities of Brian in her mm-hmm. that you just see all the time. And and whenever I see her in a film, she often plays these very strong, confident women, but they're not remote or like cold Mm -hmm. like you know what i mean like like the way they're very dynamic and and human and real and um and i i like the way she approaches her characters and i think she's i'd have to go back through her filmography because i don't think i've seen enough of her tv movies but i feel like she's pretty savvy about the kind of projects Mm -hmm. she'll take yeah and and that's important too like she's not just taking roles because she needs the work or whatever she's Mm -hmm. like i i want to do something that i can be good in and i like the character or i like the movie or whatever so so like she's she's savvy um mm-hmm. and i appreciate that as well but like i like these like um i don't know how to say it like super women i just yes. like i like seeing them like this these women like this in tv movies and i like that she carries the film on her back basically mm-hmm. um in this really intriguing story and and they let her just do it the way she's going to do it. Yes. I, and I feel like I'm wording this awkwardly. It's another one of those things where the movie's so good, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's like she's just so damn good in it. And she's she's I, I like the fact that yeah, she's a, she's a very good detective with these weird clues. She's able to piece all this stuff together, and she's checking the microfiche, and she's traveling to Arizona or wherever the heck she goes to that uh, asylum to talk to. And that she's guy. great with people because remember she runs into that like kind of 
insane person mm-hmm. and yeah. they have a conversation like she's just good with people yes. in general which is how she's able to handle the guy at the bar at the beginning because yeah. she knows how to handle like bad drunk people and and like she just is really good at taking care of herself mm-hmm. and i think that that's probably a really important maybe i don't know i don't want to like project things onto her but maybe after she played wonder woman she kind of felt like it's kind of important for me to play characters that take care of themselves yes. because young girls look up to me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, Christopher Reeve, he did a movie that I'd like to cover on here. I think it's called Bump in the Night with Meredith Baxter and Wings Hauser. Oh. Where uh, Christopher Reeve plays a pedophile. Oh. And he actually did newspaper promotions where he said, if you're watching this because you liked me in Superman and you're a kid, don't tune into this because... Yeah. Uh, that's not what I'm doing tonight, and it's probably not for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're probably too young to watch it, and blah blah blah. And I and he was very specific about that. But like, um, and so he was going the opposite of Superman. Yeah. But I kind of feel like there's something about Linda Carter's film choices where she's like not trying to play super, you know, I uh, superheroes, but like these characters that that embody these qualities that Wonder Woman had. They come out in a lot of her roles. You know what I mean? One of one of the things I, I I really I really like is like I said I love I love how she's able to I, I love I love too that thing where like like all the guys just like are like oh yeah oh she's mm, yeah it was Linda Carter you know it's like all the guys like how you doing yeah and she and she's <laughs> just, she's just very kindly in general like yeah okay yeah, yeah have a nice day you know just go about your busy you know and she she's able to sort of handle them without making them all feel like. <laughs> kind of assholes which you know some of them are something that i really like about women who are beautiful is uh, clearly it's one of the most beautiful women in the world and there, there's a few actresses that would fill in that category but like when you realize that the beauty is part of them but doesn't define them mm-hmm. yeah and her characters are like that too so so brian is kind of like this woman who i think realizes that she's a good looking person mm-hmm. you know but like that's not everything that she is yes yeah you know and that's kind of important she gets i, I like the way how when when the when the the i'm just gonna call him the, the barber is is like calling her and and she is creeped out by it and you know the, the guy she's working with like yeah that's gonna happen you're gonna get creeps on the phone um but she's able to sort of keep her head and investigate what's going on but then there's that great moment where she goes to arizona wherever it is she goes to the asylum and then she's heading back to la and then she suddenly gets a call on the courtesy yeah. phone, on the red courtesy phone, and she realizes that like, and the killer's like, "Oh, I see you're you're heading home, and you were just at the asylum, and how'd it go?" And she's like, "Wait a minute, how do you know?" I'm Brian O'Neill. You were paging me. Yes, Miss O'Neill. There's a call for you. You can take it on the red courtesy telephone. Thank you. Air Force Flight Five Hundred Two, now arriving to Minneapolis. Hello, this is Brian O'Neill. Did you find? She, she knows she's not dealing with a nice person, but the person has been treating it sort of as a game, as awful as it is. But it's that moment where it's like, no, wait a minute. You're I you know, he says, like, I know what you I know how you where you sleep and I know what you eat and everything like that. And suddenly it's like that that's where we sort of cross over the line and she's sort of keeping it together. But also like she fixates on one guy, granted, one guy who sort of goes to the exact place she goes 
over and over again. And and, and she, she almost she almost kind of loses it for a bit there, but she kind of keeps it together. And, and why wouldn't you lose it a bit, though, when suddenly you realize that there's a, a possibly a serial killer like at the phone looking right at you when you're doing stuff. But she, she handles herself well, e- even up to the very end. And then, you know, we all go crazy in the end because that's what happens in the end. And it's a twisted game. This person is now kind of broken the rules. And she kind of like, for, for a little bit, she's very nervous, and, and it's just I, I. But but she's still like she doesn't run around up and down the hall screaming or anything like that. She's just like she now no. now she's okay. So now this this person isn't playing by whatever rules there are. And it's it's funny. I thought that there, there's a moment where the barber says something like, "We don't have any secrets, you and I." And I thought, well, I mean, except for everything you are. Yeah, except for your name. Yeah, except for your name, who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing except for everything on your side of it. You know, the moments where she does sort of lose it slightly, lose composure slightly, are exactly the moments when I would have lost composure, probably actually a lot sooner than that but 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 i i I like i i just like the way she she handles herself and i i would have loved to have seen like for for a split second i thought maybe that guy who she thinks might be the barber who seems to be kind of following her but not really what if that was him you know what what would that have had and it's not because it's meant to be a mystery and if it's some guy we've never seen before that's no mystery but it's 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 nicely done right there where it's sort of like and because that sort of puts in the mindset where she thought he was there sort of watching her but he he knows her so he knows what she's doing and so he's able to sort of anticipate but he's not like standing right there staring at her kind of thing <laughs> and it's it's just it's just it's it's really nicely done and, and they they're they're able to sort of up the ante as it goes along and so even having like mr van dusen there sort of protecting her you think in the end she's probably going to protect him if, if worse comes to worse in her cool like slipper shoe things that she wears those socks she's got that are like slippers did you see those Yes. Oh, they're so cool. Those yeah. are cool. She's <laughs> That's got, funny. Yeah. She's got a cool robe on, and she's got these cool like they're they're socks, but they're like slippers too. Everyone, I know this was the '80s. Our technology was amazing. So, <laughs> but but she but yeah she she's she's such a cool character, and um uh and there, there is well I'll, I'll just stop talking about that right now. But I I just love what she, uh, what her character goes through and what her character does and and everything. It's just it's it's really nicely done. Yeah, it is. It's a really well put together film, and um, and it's really stood the test of time. Like it's like uh, it has a rewatchability for me that it never gets old. This mm-hmm. movie never. There's just some TV movies that I could just return to over and over again, and this is one of them. It's just one of those great, not a slasher, but it feels like a slasher. Mm-hmm. You know, has some elements there that are obviously don't deal with like the actual slashings, but mm-hmm. that are incorporated into it. And I, I, I wish I'd seen this in 1982 mm-hmm. at 11 years older, how old I would have been when yeah. I saw it, because it would have blown my mind. Like, yeah. you know, it would have been the closest thing I could have gotten to like a Sasha film at the time. And it's really feeding <laughs> off of that in a lot of really interesting ways, but particularly with the development of the female protagonist. And so that's one of the things about it that makes it so enduring for me is that it it's it's well it's really well put together like you said. Yeah. But it's also like got these really great characters, but particularly Linda Carter. I, I think too I, I, like I said earlier, I've been watching a lot, a lot of modern horror films lately and, and like really low budget things that you've never heard of. And a lot of them are 
sort of like when they do found footage and stuff like this, a lot of them will be things like people investigating and discovering like horrible things that have happened. And then gradually as the movie goes along, something in the end happens to them kind of thing. But it's not like a slasher where there's a killing every, you know, seven or eight minutes. You know, it's, it'll be like they'll discover something horrible happened and you'll learn about it. And, and you know, and this is kind of like that, you know, every – 15, 20 minutes, the barber calls up with an, is that, that's right, yeah, I keep thinking I'm saying the wrong thing whenever I say that, um, we'll call up with another kind of creepy thing, and then she'll have to investigate what was this, and so it's not a, a killing occurring, the killings have occurred, and she kind of discovers them, and with yeah. each one, it becomes grosser and closer, grosser and closer to her. That's kind of almost in, in, in like, like I said, in some of the found footage and thing, that's almost how they work where there aren't, you know, like if, if there are a group of like four or five people who go into an abandoned hospital or something, most of them don't die until the end. They, because you have to keep the cameras going, right. you can't kill the people. So, so they'll discover like this horrible thing happened and you'll see visions of things and stuff like that. And then something won't actually happen to them until the end. And that's kind of what's happening with her here is she she's discovering this weird trail that seemed to be, un, you know, disconnected killings that are leading to someone possibly close to her and maybe to her. And it's it's um, and it's nicely done. But but I, I, I like the way that happens where it's sort of it's slasher adjacent because it's about yes. horrible killings happening. We're just hearing the stories and discovering the details after the fact. Yeah. Rather than. Is having them happen to but us. it has some of those tropes like it's got the black christmasy phone calls and it's yes. got the star definitely there she so the butcher is or barbara i'm sorry is stalking her instead of stalking individual people different people throughout the film he's like stalking her so it's mm-hmm. got this like element of stalking in it yeah. too which is huge in slashers and also like her in the remote kind of like house and like it's got all these different elements and also like i'm glad you brought up the house because i think when we did cocaine one man seduction i was talking about how much i love the interiors of early 80s tv movies they're very brown (laughs) and wooden and i love them and i can't get enough of them and um and her house has got all those warm tones Mm -hmm. that i just i love and it's one of those great houses that when you feel safe in it it's the most wonderful place in the world but then the moment she feels like she's being like there's a great shot i think one of the i i forget what near near the end where there's like there's just a really long shot of you know her in this gorgeous house like pulling all the curtains shut and everything where suddenly it's become this 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 beautiful space that she was living in is now something that's kind of become terrifying yeah and, and just the way it can change like that when you get some nutball calling up saying he kills women and cuts their hair that's kind of like someone's watching me right because she was mm-hmm. in a great apartment but then yes. there's yeah. no safety from it so she ends up like kind of isolating herself inside the house and even yes. then it's not safe right yes so, yes yeah. yeah it's kind of the same element there um yeah it's just ugh, everything 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 <laughs> it's everything it's perfect i love this movie and i'm i'm just so sad nate isn't here because i feel like yeah. He'd yeah. have some stuff to say about it too. And, and, the, and the, the great thing is that when you sort of realize that any any one of these people she knows could be the the person, the the the, the barber. I was going to call him the butcher or the baker or something like that. The baker. No, the 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 the, 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 the killer. Um, then then scenes like them all hanging out on um, what is it? Uh, Tom Hunter's boat or something like that. You you watch them like trying to see you know you watch it like you would watch a mystery like trying to spot who the suspect is 
kind of thing rather than it being like something where like if 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 i didn't suspect dr price then all the scenes they had together i might be a bit like okay can we move it on yeah but but because you kind of do because he keeps going away and then he keeps showing up at her house in the middle of the night and then is he married or not kind of thing keeps keeps i i that seems strangely important to me i don't know why it it comes to nothing he's not married in the end, but um, all, all these little things, when, when you see the, then it becomes like all of them could be suspects. So you watch them to see, you know, you watch one scene and you go, oh, I think it's him. Then you watch the next one and go, oh, no, it's him. <laughs> then you watch the one, no, it's the first guy. And so, so it's nice that, like I said, scenes that could be sort of just kind of fluffy sort of romance scenes. If you think that he might be the killer, become a little darker. And, and more interesting to watch. And the movie does, a, a, I think, a pretty sweet job of keeping it exciting until the very end when it becomes just weird and then suddenly ends. Why don't you tell us about the ending, Dan? Uh, <laughs> well, um, the killer is um, uh, is Kyle. Uh, that would be Mr. Monty Markham. <laughs> and, um, geez, I, I don't... Uh, I, I don't... I don't want to go full into it, but it's something to do with, with Tom and some killings and there's some, I almost don't, I almost don't want to tell people. Well, we've already talked about it on the, Oh, okay. On the recording. So like the thing that I found so intriguing about, well, not the ending per se, but like the thing that I talked to Money Markham about was that he has a very distinctive voice and I could not tell that was him on the phone. Yes. And so I was curious if he, he did the phone calls, which he did. Mm. I, I, I wondered if they brought in another actor to throw us off, mm. but that was just him doing the phone calls. And he does a really good job because I can't, I, if I listen really hard, I can identify it. But as just watching it casually, which I think most people probably did, it's impossible to tell that it's him. So yeah. it's such a great reveal at the end. Because cause Kyle is one of the few characters that comes across as, like, the least suspicious. Yes. And then he turns out to be the most nuttiest, right? Like, <laughs> he's doing the whole, I don't even know how to explain it, like, drag. Yes. It's that, a complicated. It's the, complicated. The, the moment he, you see his face and you see him, it's it's a mix of, oh, it's, it's Kyle. And what's he doing? <laughs> and it's... <laughs> It's really, it's really nicely done, and it's really like I, I didn't when I saw him. I was like, I, I don't think I'd ever seen Monty Markham. Maybe I have, but it was just like seeing him just crazy and just giving all the the backstory of what was happening and and everything, and just this this torrent of crazy flies out of him, and it works, and it's 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 exciting and suspenseful, and and it's just. It you know part of me still doesn't want to ruin it all even though it's already been ruined. Why is that? Because it's amazing when you see it. Yes. For the first time, and I said I forget like when I first started watching the movie over and over again. Like I watch it every couple years or whatever, but I I saw it and I was like what? And then like <laughs> and then like I watched it again a few years later and I kind of forgot who the killer was. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you forget that. And then <laughs> and then I was like what? <laughs> What? And then, so then I went a couple more years have passed, you know, like, oh, I should watch Hotline again. I haven't seen it in a while. <gasps> so, like, I've now I know, now it's imprinted in my brain. Yes. But, like, um, it is, it's quite shocking. And it, it does, it doesn't come out of the blue because I feel like they give enough stuff in there to, yes. like, you know, he explains it or whatever. But it, but it comes out of the blue because you are not expecting what you see. 
Mm-hmm. to be seen and it's like it's like the ending of sleepaway camp it's just like yes holy it is, cats it is kind of like that and i was also going to say to go to go farther back in time there's a movie called Shh, the octopus oh i haven't seen that that has the reveal of who sort of the octopus is in the end and it's actually done with a camera lighting trick and like one shot and it's I want to say exactly what it is because that might ruin it. But basically, you you see someone who you don't think would be the octopus, and then all of a sudden there's like a uh, an adjustment of lighting, and the, like makeup on the person's face which you couldn't see under one light suddenly comes out, and they're all like decrepit and crazy looking, and it's just like a moment where you're like, whoa, yeah. what's ha-? and this is sort of like that where you the moment he appears, you're like, oh, it's my, what the hell and then you watch it and, and then then when you go back and watch it again you could see they they do it nicely because yeah up until that moment i was in my mind i was jumping around going now who is it could it be this could it be that could it be who, who could it be and then it happens you're like yeah wow nice nicely what done is, i guess what do you think modern sensibilities would say about this ending i guess oh like now that I think, because so when I watch these movies, a lot of times I have to have somebody tell me it's offensive. Like I watch Three's Company, and for the most part, I don't think too much about it. Mm-hmm. But if I watch it with somebody who's like twenty five, and they'll be like, "God, he's really manhandling those girls," which he is. Yes, um, I'm like, "Oh, we just saw that. It's funny." But like, you know what I mean? Even though it's <laughs> yeah. it's like, and it is funny because it was it was very innocent. But like, but like I could see somebody who's not familiar with Three's Company watching it and being like, "Oh." Yes. He needs to he needs to back off Chrissy a little. And yeah. um, and so like and so like I guess I've never really thought about what the ending of this film means to people now. Mm. If they were to just watch it out of the blue, it's probably uh, insensitive. Yeah. It's difficult, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it is difficult. I mean, cuz he is he is the crazy killer guy. And he's uh, driven there because like Brian's the hot one right so like Mm -hmm. that's part of the motivation and so it's like yeah it's like it's bad like in that Uh. way but when i watch the movie i I actually never think about that as a matter of fact i think in some ways it's kind of a brave performance yes that's actually more or less what i thought when i was watching it part of me was like someone might see this and be a little huh i'm not sure about that but i just saw like really he's really going for it and i i think he does he succeeds in what he was doing yeah, it, um, it, it reminds me of, um, and I'm going to have to reveal the movie here if people haven't seen it, uh, Click the Calendar Girl Killer. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Not yeah. a, I love Click the Calendar Girl. It's a flawed film, but I'm a huge Ross Hagen fan, and it's one yes. of his better films. And But what I liked about it, and, and I, I don't know if Monty Markham's approach was the same, and in fact, I didn't even think to ask him about this, because I didn't. I don't think of this as a problematic ending, but then when you start talking about how you didn't want to reveal it, it made me think about some of the stuff in it that's not getting revealed and i thought oh you know what and so uh one of the things that i like about click the calendar girl killer is that ross hagan is the killer and he's in drag Mm -hmm. for some reason he's dressed up like a nurse because of some weird backstory that doesn't fully make sense and but one of the things that he does is that there's a scene i think it's at the beginning of ross hagan shaving his chest and putting on lipstick and i remember thinking the first time i saw it um that's kind of a brave thing for Ross Hagen to do because Ross Hagen yeah. is pretty much known as like kind of like this gruff actiony yeah hero kind of guy and then here he is sort of playing this like in drag serial killer which is mm-hmm. probably offensive uh, to a lot to many different degrees but but to me I see it as somebody uh, for lack of a better word fucking around with their image yeah and and Monty Markham he's played many different kinds of characters but he's a pretty hunky 
guy. Yeah. And like, especially when you watch Visions, I mean, like that's a and Death Takes a Holiday. Mm-hmm. Like he's gorgeous, you know, and like, and he plays these like love interests in these movies, and he's this romantic lead, and he's also like this like the the leading man in all these films and so here he comes into this kind of supporting role mm-hmm. where he's also like this deranged killer who is like in love with his friend and it's mm-hmm. like that's really brave that's messing yeah. around with your image you know and that's how i see it mm-hmm. i i don't know i mean i've i've seen so many you know, we've we've seen so many slashers. We've seen so many mysteries and things like that. That I um, that it it didn't like when I saw it. I think for for a moment when I got to the end, I thought I I could see someone maybe watching that today and being absolutely fine with the movie up until that point, and then being like, hmm. But I don't. I I it didn't it didn't bother me. I I mean, it's uh, I feel a little uh. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. We're just stumbling for words. I think. Because, <laughs> because to me, I think it's um, I, I j- just as a writer myself, you know, when you're trying, you know, the, you, you know, you, you're trying to, you're trying to get uh, surprise people, trying to give them a satisfying ending, and maybe something that they wouldn't expect, but that was maybe that, that was anticipated by what you've seen, and to me, this works perfectly doing that. But I could also see watching it how how um. How uh, today, some like I said, I've said that once, I've said that twice already. Is how someone might. But I mean, so. I think even in the '80s and '70s, there when these kinds of roles would come out, there were a lot of people that were like, "Ah, oh, you're making a stereotype," you know, oh, and yeah, and yeah. you have to be really careful about that. But I feel like it's just like you said, it just works. But I'm mm. also doing this from my perspective, which is not a gay person who has to deal with yeah. movies where gay people are presented as psychotic. Mm-hmm. And I might have a different viewpoint. So yeah. I feel like when Nate comes back, I put all this pressure on him. I would like to just <laughs> ask him, though. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I know he really likes this film, if he has any thoughts on it or something. Yeah, this is one of those I feel out of my element. And, and I'm kind of glad I feel out of my element because I feel mm-hmm. like if we were sitting here saying, oh, well, it means this or that, then we're, yeah. we're like kind of being insensitive. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. I feel like we're us struggling shows that we're actually like we care Yeah, I... about what the film's saying. And and it's interesting too because to me it may, it leaves the the film is kind of open to further discussion. Yeah. You know we haven't. Um, you know it's not a film where where we can we can state absolutely that this is going on and, and the discussion is over. We're still there's still more discussion to be had. Yes, there about is. It. Yeah. And we'll have to return to that. And um, but I mean overall. Yeah. Um, with and I guess if people haven't seen the movie, maybe they're listening now. They can they can make a better informed decision if that kind of stuff bothers them. But but mm-hmm. I think it's so well done here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come across as like it's certainly not mean spirited, you know. And I I think that can kill a lot of movies. So like and this is a totally random example, but like House on the Edge of the Park is wall to wall sexual assault, mm-hmm. but it's not mean spirited to me. So for the most part, it's really watchable, even though mm-hmm. it's totally offensive. Yeah. And so, whereas something like for me personally, um, I spit on your grave feels mean spirited. So therefore it's not a movie yes. I can return to, but house on the edge of the park, put it on right now. I'm going to sit down. I'm ready. <laughs> and I can walk up until the part where Cindy, the blonde shows up at the end. Oh it's yes. Like, it's yeah. very watchable. And then it becomes really uncomfortable and it's still a really good movie, but mm-hmm. it's like, it's like the, this movie lacks this, I think ugly intention behind it, which makes yes. it a lot more palpable than maybe other films of this kind might be, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, it's actually funny. I have it playing here right now. 
and uh, the guy is showing her how the um, recorder works. Okay. <laughs> We're going back uh, to that. And speaking of gay characters, right? Because there's this yeah. intention, right, where he calls the guy and just yeah, he just calls a guy up and <laughs> just 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 scares the hell out of a guy the guy for a laugh, and it's very funny. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. So Hotline is a complicated film, but we really yeah. like it. I think that's yeah. the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. But probably, yeah. probably, um, maybe there's a dissertation for somebody out there. Yes. Yeah. And I think, um, and I, I do, I do, I am noticing too that the guy, when he's making the phone call to show how the, the recorder works, there's a, um, there's a, a poster for uh, Napoleon behind him. I wonder what that. <laughs> We're going to start reading all this stuff into the movie. Because huh. I think it's from, was it Abel, Abel Gantz's? Is that, I've never said his name out loud, his Napoleon, the silent Napoleon. Oh. I think, because I think it was re released. Oh, that's interesting. It was re released like in the 70s or 80s or something like that. I wonder if that's like a re released poster from it or something. Because that seems to be what it's from. And um, does that, does the man who's selling her the recorder think he's Napoleon? That's I not know. a nutty thing, is it? Because so many nutty people pretend to be that's the they pretend to be napoleon right is that is that meant to be a intentional sim, joke? a symbolism or something i don't know i Gosh. don't know i feel like i feel like we need to read a lot of academia and then wow and then reconvene here we go everyone it's gonna be the, the academic lecture on hotline uh we just got to this at the end of the episode folks so we're all done yeah, we're done. So you have to hold done. on. We're done. We'll, Sorry. We'll return to that. But anyway, yeah. So, I mean, in retrospect, it's a complicated movie, but it's also incredibly enjoyable. And um, and Money Markham is fantastic in it. And it's, I think, a really great double with Visions because it is two totally different and really yes. great performances. I mean, he's a wonderful actor. Um, and he seems so effortless. Like, mm-hmm. I can't figure out how he does it. Like it takes on all these different characters because he he's really yeah. prolific and um, he just doesn't hit bad notes. And he he's great as the seven million dollar man, <laughs> where he's he's just the he's just he you know he likes Steve Austin, but he knows that he is more powerful than him, and that kind of makes him a little bit bad. Ooh. Sort of. I don't remember these. I'll have to go back to his. The, the, he's in two. He's in two episodes. They're both pretty good. He's the um, best. And you know, Granville Van Dusen was in um, a Bionic Woman. We talked about that. You know, where he could like oh, yeah. slow his body down so people thought mm-hmm. he was dead, and that was like his superpower. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he was. They were going to make a TV show out of it, and we were like, "Well, is he just going <laughs> to lay there? Like, I don't yes. understand how that show works." <laughs> but okay. I mean, he's Granville Van Dusen, so I'll watch it. But that became like really important because um, Lindsay Wagner. I remember I mentioned this in the episode we covered, which was the Mud Monster episode, the World. Yeah, Beyond. I love Mud Monster. Yeah. Yeah, that Lindsay Wagner wrote in her biography that mm. uh, there was somebody who had cancer, I think, and they were doing chemotherapy, and they actually learned the breathing techniques that Gran- Granville Van Dusen used in the Bionic Woman, oh. and they used it when they went through chemotherapy to help mm-hmm. slow their breathing down and to like help with the medicines. There's, there's some story I can't remember. I, we talked mm. about it in that episode. So whatever, Granville Van Dusen's yeah, I... a god. I, I've known of the show The Second Hundred Years for ages, but I'm, I, I've never seen it. But now it sounds really complicated. Like he was in suspended animation for 10 years and now he's half the age of his son. And you know, Longer than 10 years, like 100 years. Yeah, so he comes, he comes back okay. and he plays, I think, himself as his grandson and as his grandfather. Do you know okay. what I mean? I think those are the characters. And I don't know that you can find it anywhere, but you can watch promo clips that are pretty good. Okay. I give you kind of a general idea of what the show's about. And he's really great in it, and he got to play two different roles, so which must have made filming yeah. just a monster. 
Yeah, because they do those shows in like five to six days. Wow. What what did what did Patty Duke do? She must have gone nuts. Wow. Yeah. You have to be in great shape. A lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, she was a teenager. That's what I mean. You have to be young and like virile. Wow. Yeah, to be able to do that. Oh, I never even thought about Patty Duke. That must have been ridiculous. That was three, four years that was on the air. Yeah. Monty wow. Markham only had to do a season. What's he complaining about? Yeah, come on, it's your, your second hundred years. <laughs> he doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't know. <laughs> so anyway, let's do some let's do some background here before yes. we keep digging holes and stuff. Um, so this was originally called Reach Out. Um, it originally aired on October sixteenth, nineteen eighty two. So it's another Halloween movie airing almost exactly ten years after Visions to the date. It originally ran on CBS. It ran against on ABC The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, and on NBC it ran against Give Me a Break, Love Sydney, and The Devil in Connection. And I guarantee you that on October sixteenth, nineteen eighty two, I was watching The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Oh yeah. I just probably didn't even know Hotline existed because I don't remember ever leaving ABC, ever, <laughs> except to maybe watch Silver Spoons. You know what I mean? Sure. It, it didn't do very well in the ratings. It got a 14.5 slash 25, ranking at number 139 out of 231 made-for-TV movies to air oh. that year. But um, when you think about it, when you take that 25, that basically means 25% of households with televisions were watching, who were watching TV that night were tuned into Hotline. So that's a fourth of America. Mm. Not awful. Mm-mm. Not awful. Sounds awful in 1982, but not awful in the scheme of. Not things. today. Yeah, no, today. That's like a be. mega hit. Yeah, that's like almost a Super Bowl. Well, not quite. Not <laughs> the Super Bowl is a lot more, but, but that's huge. But it's yeah. huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. It was directed by Jerry Jameson, written by David Peckinpah, who this was an early script for him. But I will say, I saw that Jimmy Sangster was credited in early newspaper articles from April of 1982. And I didn't dig any deeper, but I'm curious if he was involved in the uh, story at all. Um, It has a Jimmy Sangster feel to it. Yeah, didn't he do do No Place to Hide? I want to say yes. And I know he did a lot of the psycho-y films back in the the 60s. Yeah, this is very much his sort of... um, his sort of realm. Yeah, so I guess it's possible, and maybe that's something. Maybe we will come back to this movie because I feel like there's more work to be done. Now that you now that you said that, the ending of it seems very Jimmy Sangstery six. You know, because this yeah. is the sort of the sort of ending that they would come up with when they were doing the psycho ripoffs in the yeah. '60s. This is very much like the, that sort of thing. The ending. Yeah, this mm. movie's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it's becoming wow. more and more fascinating. Um, in early 1982, Linda Carter was what they called "quote unquote" series shopping. She was looking for something more long term than a TV movie. This would turn out to be a really big year for her, though. Aside from the fact that she did get a TV series actually in 1982 as well, but I don't think it went into production. But she in in the same year, she also headlined shows at MGM Grand in both Las Vegas and at the Atlantic City Casino. Um, and nice. she filed for divorce from her then manager husband. Oh, no. And the show she was cast in was for CBS. But um, she would end up doing a show in 1984 called Partners in Crime with Lonnie Anderson, which is great. Oh, oh, I want to do that on Adventure Super Train. Uh, oh, so good. Mm. I love that show. But um, she also ended up in 1982 hosting a tennis match for TV and shot a variety special called Linda Carter Street Life, which kind of makes me laugh because when I think of Street Life, I'm not thinking of Linda Carter. <laughs> what street? Sesame? What? Wow. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. Ro- Rodeo? Yeah, I'm not thinking of like, you Downtown know, LA. Yes. I don't know, Skid Row or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not thinking about it. So Granville Van Dusen was at the point that he made Hotline independently wealthy. Oh. 
and was very particular about the roles he chose. Um, well, he was a Van Dusen. He was a Van Dusen. He, but he was independent. He made his own wealth, I should say, even though Van Dusen sounds like somebody born into money. <laughs> yes. Um, he actually was not very interested in other actors. And he did this really great interview where he comes across as a little uh, grouchy. Um, but he said that he didn't like actors because they only wanted to talk about acting mm-hmm. and that he had many other interests. Um, it turns out he made his fortune in voiceover work like Joseph Sirola. Um, he did a lot of who was in the last movie we talked about that was the connection I was talking about so he did and he was Joseph Sorolla was mentioned in interviews with Granville Van Dusen um, because I think they were both known for being really big in voiceover so you would have heard Van Dusen's voice in the 80s and as for uh, companies like Mazda Century 21 Continental um, Airlines and it actually goes all the way back to his early theater days before he started working heavily in film and television. Um, he was a Guthrie theater player who stumbled on voiceovers by accident. And it, what he liked about it was that it didn't take long and it paid well. So he said he preferred voiceover work uh, as compared to maybe appearing in the commercials because casting agents didn't always take him seriously or didn't say, I should say, they didn't take commercial actors seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, you're, you want to be in this movie, but you're, you just did an ad for Orville Redenbacher's popcorn. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, and he felt like if he was the voice, he could kind of hide that. Mm-hmm. And that if he wasn't the face of the product, it made it easier for him to maybe uh, embody different roles for casting agents. So he also did not like to go by the name Granville. Um, he, yeah, used the well, nick- yeah. he used the nickname Sonny because he thought Granville was a misleading, misleading name. People were always expecting somebody older. Mm, yeah. And but then uh, he said when he was um, a Sonny Van Dusen, people thought he was supposed to be Italian. <laughs> so he was having a real hard time with the casting agents uh, in the eighties. Yeah. Just call me Steve. Yeah, <laughs> just call him the Van Dusen man. The Van Dusen man. man. Yeah. And so, um, so this was not pretty. This was not well received by critics. Um, mm. The Hartford Courant called it a dud, um, and oh. it actually didn't get a lot of reviews. This was a review for a nineteen eighty five rerun. Um, and um, it just it was in that era where people were really either burnt out on horror or they thought it was all the same and they didn't want to mm-hmm. deal with it Yeah. and it was low class and whatever and it wasn't being taken very seriously but it would turn out that this would as we've talked about turn out to be a really fascinating kind of multi-layered film so mm-hmm. um, we proved the critics wrong yeah yeah. You know I'm saying? on yeah. May for TV Mayhem show June of 2023 we proved the critics wrong and we're smug about it. We are super smug about it. <laughs> yeah. Eat it, critics. Stinkers. Eat it, Harford Courant. <laughs> eat, it. eat it. Eat it, boy. Eat it. Yeah. And that's pretty uh, much all of the background I have. Uh, we don't have any feedback because I did not promote this episode very well because I'm buried <laughs> in work. Um, so let's just uh, do shameless self-promotion and... Mm. Um, and talk about how to get in touch with us. And I'm not going to say what the next episode is going to be because I feel like we've been playing around with these episodes and moving them around. Mm-hmm. But we do have another one lined up. And I'm hoping that I can get this David Green episode out and then this one kind of back to back. Well, we believe in you. It's been months, yeah. Dan. It's been months. Uh, it, it has. It has. I actually forget when we recorded it. In like January. I'm A like lot. really embarrassed. But I've been buried in work. Mm-hmm. So she anyway. Yeah, so that's that's where my shameless self promotion goes because I don't even know what I can promote that it hasn't been mm-hmm. announced. Like like I don't know what's been announced that I can yeah. promote because I've done so much and I can't remember what's come out and what hasn't. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's okay 
to say, and I think I said this on your podcast. Well, I've been doing your podcast. We've been covering Lucan, which has been yes. really fun. And by the time this comes out, that will be covered and old and gathering dust. <laughs> but I, I got on your show. I was oh, I was invited on your show to talk about Lucan, and that's been really fun. I feel like I'm done talking, so this is really hard for me. Talk to you later. Yeah, I did. <laughs> now the Hartford Koran. Yeah. <laughs> eat it, Hartford. <laughs> eat it, boy. Eat it. <laughs> I'm going to the... call them up right now. I just tell them. If they still exist. I'm going to do my uh, barber voice. That's right. Do it. Hey, Hartford Koran. <laughs> I I don't. It was. He does a very good. It's a very creepy voice where you can't. You really can't quite tell. Like, hey, Harford Courant, <laughs> we just we just took you and your hotline review out back. I don't know. I don't know what. To I say. feel so punch drunk. I feel like I've been awake for four days. Is what I feel like. <laughs> but oh, eat it, Harford. So anyway, um, I don't know what else I can announce. Hmm. I feel like there's something I did that I could... T- oh, Plus yes, I did. I have. Okay. So, coming in August, Fun City Editions is releasing a sequel to their Primetime Panic box set, which came out a couple years ago, and it's going to be called Aptly Enough Primetime Panic 2. It's going to have three TV movies on it, and the most important one for me is The Seduction of Gina, which is a TV movie which stars Valerie Bertinelli that I love from the early 80s. As a matter of fact, it's from the era of Hotline. Um where she plays a woman who becomes addicted to gambling. And um, the research meant watching every Valerie Bertinelli movie ever made. Um, and it was really pleasurable for me. I love her. And um, it's a really great movie. And the box set's going to be great. And that's coming out in August. That is the last thing I did that I know has been announced for sure. So um, everybody check that out. Support TV movies when and where you can. I will say also, I guess I could say it here. I was uh, inducted into the Rondo Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Um, suck it, Hartford Koran. Suck it, Hartford. Yeah. I'm a Monster Kid Hall of Fame. So Some Monster Kids in Hartford. That's <laughs> bite it. All right. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And so I'm really excited about that. That was an honor. So if you wrote me in on that little writing category, I really appreciate it. Um, I also got like honorable mention, I think, for favorite commentator. So that also was really cool. Um, and everything else is just to be announced. And hopefully if I can get this podcast going in some kind of real way, um, I'll be able to make those announcements in a timely manner. Also, we are available now on Spotify Yay. and on Amazon and on a few other um, listening devices. I don't know what you call that podcast. <laughs> listening to a, I don't know. I've been awake for listening a while. Platforms? Platforms. Thank you. We are available on several new platforms. So um, if you go look for us on rss.com, you'll see the listing, of I think, of at least a couple of the places that you can tune into and gra- grab us. I'm still on the old iTunes, and I have to fix that, and that's a whole process. Yeah, so for right now, I'm going to... No. So for right now, I'm going to keep the old website up. It's really clinky, and it, I think clunky was the word I wanted to use. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. Hard for Karat, you're going down. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I got really tired between, well, this is a complicated film, and hey, this is what I did this year. So, like, anyway, that's going on with me. And, Dan, you kind of talked about what you were doing, but do you want to promote anything? Um, uh, my, yeah, my Henningverse book is still available. I believe the action movie book still is. Um, yeah, and eventually Super Train, we are, we... 
you and I are discussing Lucan. We've discussed Lucan. Um, uh, Chris Blind, myself, are discussing, have discussed Galactica 1980. And I am Gemini Man, possibly into a new show. Uh, the, I, I will say this. Um, the, the, the follow-up show I'm going to do to Gemini Man will be another solo show, but this will be my first Saturday morning Ooh. show. So it will be a, and it's actually not a short-lived show because Saturday morning shows run in a different way than other shows. Saved by the Bell. <laughs> the college years. Oh no, that ran in prime time. Oh, did it? Oh darn it. Okay, well I lied to you, folks. No, this will be this will be something fun to talk about that ran Saturday mornings, and um, yeah, that's it. Is it Shazam? Oh no 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 it's uh, no it's not um, because I th- I think Shazam uh, like Shazam did like a full Saturday morning season and then another one. So it's kind of out of the purview oh, I see. Okay. of this. It's not and a show. If a show had one full season and then more, then it's outside. Like say, like um, get Is a it Hong Kong Fui. Hong Kong. It's not Hong Kong Fui. Although Hong Kong Fui could could be one. That show's great. The, 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 well, no, I was going to say the Jetsons could be one, but then the Jetsons had those mid '80s episodes. I have a Hong Kong Fui bobblehead. Nice. <laughs> I do have Hong Kong Fui on DVD, so I could do that, but it's not I have it. Fui. I love that show. Yeah, it is a great show. It's yeah. great. Wasn't that Scatman Crothers? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go oh, ahead. no, that's, yeah, so so it'll be a Saturday morning show, which may you may actually be already happening right now. That, that is not Hong Kong Fui or Saved by the Bell or it's Shazam. Or Shazam, no, or ISIS, because ISIS had a full season and then like a chunk of a second season. So is it Arc One Eighty Two or whatever that show's called? Ar- yeah, Arc. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not. It, it is not a. Um, <laughs> is those, are those was that a Sid and Marty Croft filmation? I have no idea. It's, it's not one of the filmation uh, shows. It's not a filmation show. Although it was almost a filmation show. Is it Captain Kong? No, no. It was almost a filmation show that I suddenly realized that. Each episode of this show was so similar that I'd have nothing to talk about after five uh, episodes. So I had to pick a show that had a little more variety. That makes sense. Yeah. That so, sense. so, but it, it should be fun. And yeah, we're kicking along. And, and hopefully by this time, I've started talking about season seven of Happy Days on Rock. Oh my no God. I'm, on, I'm still on like episode 12 of Trapper John for the first <laughs> season. I'm having such a hard time. And I, I have a bunch of scripts like mostly written. But like it takes forever. Like you know how this goes. I don't yes. know. Do you, you don't really add sound bites too much to your shows? I I, I did I did at the start, but then it just it, it got to be a bit of a hassle. And it's a hassle. The the, the sounds they weren't. I, I wasn't able to get good sound bites. And after like two or three episodes of, hey Ralph, what are you doing? Hey Richie, I got that. And it just I was like, no, we'll leave the sound. Bite. Yeah, it's really hard, and I'm I'm insistent on having sound bites in my Trapper Johns. Mm-hmm. And so it takes me forever to put them together because um, Mac, I have a Mac and Mac has made it almost impossible to use software oh. <laughs> that pulls sounds off of, first of oh, all, it doesn't so have a DVD good. drive. Mm. And so I can't play my DVDs. Second, it's hard to get pull stuff off of like YouTube, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. like it's, it's proving to be really cumbersome. And so the writing of the scripts is actually the easiest part and the recording is mm. super easy. But like the putting the sound sound bites, but I feel like I need to because so many people aren't that familiar with the episodes. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's a tricky thing. With I I, I kind of because when I first like the first two years or so of Adventure Super Train, I did as many sound bites as I could, but then somewhere I got lazy or something. 
Yeah, I've really I've been releasing podcast episodes without them because it's just hard to incorporate them in for me right now. Mm-hmm. But I love them, and I feel like they add to the to they, listening. They really do. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to try to go back to that. But anyway, that's what's holding me up with the Trapper Johns, for sure. These I don't feel as married to, but I feel like I want to interject that guy that Brian talks to at the counter when she's buying the tape machine, because that's a really good moment. That's a great scene, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so it's going to have to happen. But anyway, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, You can reach us online at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. Or uh, look or follow, look at us. You can look at us or follow us. Please enjoy looking at us. Social media platforms, which is basically just Made for TV Mayhem. So if you go on Facebook, look up Made for TV Mayhem Show. If you go on Instagram, it's at Made for TV Mayhem. And it's, I think, at Twitter, it's TV Mayhem Podcast. And you will find um, our inconsistent feeds (laughs) where uh, I try to promote the stuff and post mm. links and all that stuff and um but you can also contact us through those mm-hmm. channels i think we're a decent looking bunch i mean we'd be a fun mod squad we would be a really interesting mod squad yeah and i can i get to be mexican and the woman mm-hmm. so I, I fill in i fill in a couple different roles there i can be the dumb polish guy <laughs> that was all over mod squad that, that was a big part was, that was a huge trope of mod squad <laughs> Uh, oh, we should do a photo shoot where we're Mod Squad. I don't that know would why be we fun. haven't done that. Oh my gosh, I, that that would be great. We could be the new, slightly older Mod Squad, the but mature. Still cool, still cool. Yeah, still cool. But I mean, they did a reunion movie, so yeah, that's true. Yeah, why not? Uh, I think we, I'm going to start calling us that. Yeah, eat it, Hartford. Eat it, <laughs> Hartford. This is Dan and Made for TV Mayhem show. Suck it. <laughs> So anyway, I, I think this went off the charts, and if Money Markham yeah. listens to it, I'm not really even Sorry, sure going to think. Yeah, so um, we, we're we're incorporating the the verve of his final scene, the sort of <laughs> yeah, just go for broke. Yeah, a lot of this might get edited out too. I'm yeah, not, I can't make any promises there. But um, so anyway, thanks so much for listening. Yeah. Um, hopefully you really enjoyed the Money Markham interview. Um. And we can get more people like that on the show. I really have enjoyed interviews like Parker Stevenson. I interviewed Ken Achety for the Shades of Love uh, movies and uh, now Monty Markham. And so there is another actor that I actually talk to periodically that I think wants to come on the show, but I haven't been able to oh. like pin him down. Mm-hmm. But I, And he would be amazing to have on so so i'm working i'm trying to work on it but it's just our plates are so full right now this is just one of those times where it's been hard to navigate the podcast and i feel really bad about it so i really appreciate people listening and sticking with us and it means a lot to me and to dan and to nate yes and um and we will see you soon hopefully with another episode and um have a good day or evening bye-bye everybody